Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Anybody there? Are you able to hear me? Yeah. Yeah, you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, sounds... I think it, hope, hopefully it sounds good. Yeah, it looks like it's sufficient. Audio sounds good. Hopefully the phone recorder will pick it up okay. That's one thing I hate about iPhones is, see, most phones you can hit your phone recorder and call someone and record the conversation, not with iPhones. Gotcha. It's really inconvenient. Like, I understand they're trying to prevent people from breaking the laws in states with one-way consent or with two-way consent, but, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's part of Apple's whole thing, like, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna make you better by not letting you have the option of doing something wrong. <laughs> right? As a, and that's not the way we should More do. security theater. Yeah. Uh, you know, but you get an Android phone, yeah, you can, you can hit record, and it makes podcasting really easy, because you just call someone and record the call, and you get, like, a much better quality signal. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you can speak up a little bit. Well, come come up a little bit. What's that? Are you able to be louder? I think so. Yeah. Here, let me get a little closer here. It's too bad you're not here with me, man, because I hear that you know something about sound and engineering. That I do. <laughs> yeah. You able to hear a little better now? Yeah, I think that's better. And the recording's picking it up better than I can hear you because the the phone recording is on the computer. Closer to the gotcha. speaker. Yeah. You know. This is advanced advanced audio engineering techniques. <laughs> yeah, I know it really sucks this whole thing went down. I was looking forward to doing so many things with you. Yeah, no, me as well, man. Just hoping to play some music, do some temple work and whatnot, but, you know, shit came out of nowhere. This shit came out of Wuhan. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Not nowhere. (laughs) Yeah, don't insult the place, man. It's known for a lot of great things, like, you know, the virus. Yeah, 
I'm just making okay. sure that the that, that this podcast episode gets banned. You know, censored by uh, <laughs> Spotify. I, I blame the drummers because uh, Wuhan was also known as a symbol uh, country, one of the leading uh, providers of you know religious gongs and sort of thing. No way! Wow. Yeah, I think yeah, this this is uh, exciting for me. I don't think I've ever done a podcast interview with uh, another professional musician before. No, it's my pleasure, man. And uh, you you are definitely, it's I think... It's an more... interesting time to be a professional musician. <laughs> now, do you really mean interesting, or do you mean something else? <laughs> oh, it's shitty time. I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> by interesting you mean fucking shitty, right? We've been planning an album release for May for the last year. <laughs> so, like, all the promotions and the ramping up, you know, the, the booking agents, everything. It's like everything was, like, in momentum. And now we just haven't released it because, you know, obvious reasons. <laughs> well, but hey, my... <laughs> more shit's getting streamed now than normal, though. It's true. I mean, I've got a lot of L.A. folks that are, you know, doing the best they can, just performing at home and selling the audio tracks and whatnot, but, yeah. you know, I mean, music is a passion-based industry, so, you know, usually it takes a bit of money to kind of jumpstart that stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, um... But you... it's, it's a good thing, I think, for us, for us occultists, I think it's a good thing, right? We've got a lot of spare time, we've got a lot of solitude, you know, all the... The accoutrement ingredients to a good uh, yep. yeah, ritual. I woke up again at 5.59, 5.58 today, yesterday 5.59, spontaneously, naturally. Uh, and by, I don't know, by 7.38 I posted a podcast episode with a guided middle pillar ritual. And nice. so, like, by, by noon, I'd, you know, gotten easily a, what would no, sometimes, you know, with distractions, take me 10 hours to do. I did in six. So that's nice. Um, you know, makes it hard to stay up at night and go do nighttime ritual work, which is my preference for magic to do it, especially in an environment such as this retreat center that I'm at. So, you know, there's some amazing places to do magic around here when no one's sure, looking. Sure. When no one's looking. Um but yeah, I also like the product too. And it's nice to get some vitamin D and be out in the sun. Though I think I burned both my legs during the last three hours of live streaming. Yeah, they're 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 a bit red, and I I'm just I'm like Irish skin, so I just go from white to to burnt. There's yeah, no, there's too, too. there's no in between. Yeah, you too, eh? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Plus it's hot. I mean, it got it got up to like what eighty something. Oh yeah, I think it was close to ninety here today. Yeah, no, I, I hooked the AC back up. And, Which, know. for the real world, is cl around 32, I think. Mm -hmm. 35, maybe? 35? Yeah, but we're definitely getting it now. It looks like it's going to be dry for a while. I think, I think California summer is happening. Mm -hmm. It doesn't care about no virus. Ain't afraid of no ghost. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it, that's nature for you. It just happens. <laughs> I think the Regardless interest of what we think about it, right? Oh God, yeah. Nature doesn't give a fuck about us. Like uh, ecological theologians have been saying for a while that the secret for us to flourish on this planet is to decenter ourselves in our view of 
our relationship to nature instead of looking at like the genesis you know the second first second chapter of genesis is seeing we have dominion over the fishes of the sea and the plants of the earth and all that stuff rather it's meant to mean stewardship not not dominion and mastery like we're the epicenter of everything because nature's better off without us we're, we're we are a virus on this planet we don't bring anything positive to nature whatsoever yeah no i agree 100 percent. i mean it's one of those uncomfortable truths right like in the grand scheme of things we don't really bring anything to the table no other than in the recent you know couple thousand years personifying it right it's become mother earth oh yeah i love see i love that sally mcfig the famous writer of on ecological theology and such like that and metaphorical theology she was like the head the dean of vanderbilt and uh now is a retired at, at ubc in vancouver she she said um that you know with these metaphors of mother nature and and the the earth as god's body that necessarily leads us to interpret the doctrine of sin in a different way because if this is mother earth then clear-cutting is a sin and should require forgiveness theologically speaking if you're in that tradition but yet we don't see us behaving that way you think any anyone ever went to into a roman catholic confessional was like bless me father for i've sinned i just chopped down twenty thousand trees and sold them you know to some place for profit no they go to confession and say, uh, blah, blah, blah. Well, it's, it's morphed a lot. Like, for example, you know, my oldest kid is 16, turning 17, and their generation literally perceive human race as a cancer on the earth. Um, That's Gen Z for you, right? Yeah, I mean, and even though they're hopeful about it, there's almost this, you know, we'd just be better off if the human race died. And, and while I, I dig the sympathy these kids have for the you know the environment i think that it's kind of going leaning too far in that direction can be pretty bad for you know the human species in general yeah we actually have a word for it right (laughs) it's called misanthropy (laughs) exactly and uh we shouldn't never hate ourselves we shouldn't we should we should aspire to improve ourselves because we could do better and we can do better. We do, I think, need to decenter ourselves from our role in nature and see ourselves as participants in a whole rather than that which the entire thing should circle around. Certainly, certainly. Yeah, we're all on the same page here, I guess. Yeah, and like you said, we're stewards. We're, we're stewards. Should, you know, I mean, the ancestors before us slosh and burn, and they learned the lesson there, but there was a lot of land to move around. Would would you say that's a perspective upheld in Masonic initiations, or would you say they tend more towards the Dominion point of view? Um, I would say actually, there's actual symbology associated with it. Symbology, surely, yeah, surely, yeah. surely, you mean symbolism? It's symbolism. <laughs> <laughs> unless unless you're Dan Brown, Dan Brown knows symbolism so well, it's not symbolism; it's symbology. Gotcha. Well, I mean, there's the the cornucopia. Uh, which is the symbol of man and industry. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, symbols that associate men with industry and development. I mean, masonry obviously is more about, you know, sort of the stone and the wall theory, right? Well, yeah, they're not clear-cutting. It's not no. it's not wooden wood wood it's not it's not lumberry. <laughs> it's masonry. Exactly. 
you know, and, and today's masons are speculative masons, right? They don't actually cut blocks. They use these tools uh, theoretically then, for theurgic purposes. Lazy bastards. Totally. <laughs> well, no, no. Let's be honest. We're both masons. Um, I, 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 of course, have risen to the the highest degree. I'm a first degree mason. And you're still way down at what, 32nd, 33rd degree mason? Yeah, yeah, way down, way down in the chamber. So once, once, in the caves, right? once you put in a bit more time and effort, you'll eventually rise from 32nd or 33rd degree mason all the way up to where I am at at first degree, correct? Exactly. Do I have the structure right? The calculus, right? Do I have the structure right or, or have I made a mistake? <laughs> <laughs> am I completely flipping the system on its head? Fair enough. <laughs> no, so masonry starts at first degree, goes to third degree, and then you be, that's when you become a master mason, and that's really full membership, right? Yeah, that's, that's the end of what they call the, the, the Blue Lodge or craft masonry. Yeah. Um, after the third degree... There is no degree higher than the third degree, but but over the years, uh, particularly with a lot of Scottish Masons, um, in the introduction of more philosophy coming from different places, they started to create the uh, Scottish Rite degrees, which were actually originally written. The first six, I believe, were written by uh, Pasquale. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then... Uh, you know, the, the good old one, mainly P. Hall, or not mainly P. Hall, uh, Albert Pike then took those degrees that Pasquale had, mixed it with a bunch of other stuff, and literally wrote the system of degrees that we use today. I've heard arguments that, that Pike is a bit um, overshadowed by Mackenzie, or is it the other way around? Um, he was overshadowed. I mean, Pike, Pike you know, he would take anything and connect it. And I think guys like Mackenzie didn't like that. They uh, knew that he was kind of taking bullshit and putting together something. He was sort of loosely equivocating things. Yeah, in order, I think, to kind of build his own ego of understanding it. Yeah. Um, he wasn't really a big ritualist, from what I understand. He was more kind of like your armchair Masonic scholar. Like a, like a Lefis Levy was in Hermeticism. Exactly. He yeah. could put all the pieces together. He could analyze it. it he just could come to some basic truths, but he wasn't really a a regular practitioner, so to speak. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, practitioners, you know, that that gets, that's that's that devil worship stuff. Oh, of course, right? Yeah. The real work, right? <laughs> so, so as, as, as you are, you are what, you're, you've gotten the highest ranks in both, both the York and Scottish, right, correct? Um, for Scottish, I finished all degrees in uh, York, right? I'm all the way up to what they call the Cryptic Council. Okay. Uh, next thing from there moves up to Templars. I don't know much about the Cryptic Council. I can't. I can't imagine why. It's okay. So basically, <laughs> the right the right path of uh, it's, masonry it's, or the right staircase. It's probably just is, too cryptic for me. Well, it's it's an it's an uh, it's basically piecing together all the different religious philosophies under one umbrella. Whereas when you take the York right all the way up to Templar you actually have to profound or profess the Christianity is your main religion. Okay. So it's a little bit different. Yeah, so you're see. Find a lot of the Bible thumpers are always going to go to that left side. Yeah. Whereas uh, some of us more esoteric folks are going to go to the right, so we can do a little bit of everything. Interesting. How, how, uh, how do you find 
your background in masonry and well, your role in masonry because you're still active, very active, right? You, uh, you, you're involved in even property management for your lodges, correct? Yeah, no, that's correct. Yeah. Um, that's a lot of responsibility. Masonry, you know, it's there's there's guys that don't want to participate, and there's guys that do. Kind of like any order, the guys that do want to participate are typically doing a little bit of everything. Sort of eighty twenty situation, right? Yeah, I mean, some guys just come get their three degrees and they either stay or they leave. Um, guys like me kind of get into more of the ritual, uh, the pieces of the ritual, uh, and really perform duties. So I've done most of the officer roles, excluding the warden and master role. Huh. Do you, I, I, I think I'm one of the rarer people who only did, like, it's probably rarest of all people like me who just did the first degree, right? Not really. Um, you get a lot of people who bail after one one night of toasting the queen to drunkenness. <laughs> well, I think there was so much more obscurity about masonry back in the day. I mean, for example, just talking to gentlemen from like the you know, 1940s and whatnot, they didn't even uh, know who the members were of the lodge. Whoa. They didn't know where the lodge was. And for example, in French masonry, um, there's, you know, I'll paraphrase a story. It could be a little wrong. They, they got a bit more mystical. They stayed a bit more mystical, didn't they? Big time. In Big. fact, you would you would be told, you know, you know like for example, you know, like those funny college movies where the where the dorm guys will come take you and throw you into a van. Oh yeah. You around blindfolded, that, right? That was definitely my college experience. That is that's French masonry. <laughs> that's where it all comes from. Oh. They started the whole, you know, caps you in the middle of the night. You have no idea where you're at. Really? You know, you're in a hoodwink and you're surrounded by brethren. Huh. Well, that, that you know, maybe I would have stuck with it if they had done that to me. It would have been exciting. <laughs> who doesn't like you know, a little Who doesn't like a little hoodwinking just to throw in some spice? Exactly. Especially if there's no women around, you may as well get into a bit of blindness and bondage play. <laughs> I, I hope I'm not. That's probably where the biggest jokes happen. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, no, there's always joking about that. In fact, there's actual written documentation for lodges to calm down their ritual in certain parts of the world. Huh. Um, you know, in fact, locally here in Santa Rosa, there's a, there's a big history where, um, what is it, the, the, the local family that came through here. Um, one of the brothers that started the lodge in Santa Rosa in Sonoma was actually reprimanded because he was, you know, burning initiates and doing all these funny things that you could probably never get away with today. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So masonry is different everywhere, kind of like a lot of systems. Yeah, well, that's it's interesting another. to hear that because I think a lot of people have the under impression that masonry is more uniform, whereas things like OTO, Golden Dawn are more disparate. Definitely. Uh, the U.S. is pretty universal because it's been around for so long. But overseas, like in, in Scotland, Glasgow, um, you can go to their rituals and not identify really anything. Yeah, I would always walk by this Masonic Hall in Galway, Ireland, and I, I always thought about going in and like introducing myself because when I did do my first degree in 2004, I was told unequivocally that after that initiation, I was a full Mason. Like, they're yeah, like, you're just as much a Mason as we are, they said. Even if you never do another degree, you're still a Mason, whether you like it or fucking not. That's correct. And I thought that was a beautiful sentiment. Like, because, you know, so many orders are like, hey, you're, in, you're with us now, but if you don't behave, you're, we're throwing you out. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, the original Masonic orders, it was like a like a one day thing. I mean, you could you could literally the three degrees were one degree system. Oh wow, I would have um, liked it wasn't that until later that they were kind of out in individual degrees. See, that was my main problem with masonry, other than the fact that they tricked me into taking an oath on an English flag and then toasting the queen afterwards all night long. And I'm like, uh, what, you know? And, uh, for me though, it was like the lack of intensity coming. Uh, Cause my experience, like I did a bit of am work when I was a kid and I got exceptions made so I could do the adult am work mm-hmm. system, even though I was 13. But then in the, when I went into the golden dawn, it was so intense in the golden dawn that by seven years later, when I did my Masonic degree, it just felt flat. It felt like, you know, it felt empty and un- unexciting. So I think if it had been more intense, like all three first, yeah. de- all three degrees up to master masonry done in one day, and you know, hey, you can fast, and then I probably would have been so overwhelmed and ecstatic with the experience. I would have been like, yeah, let's fucking toast the queen. God bless that old cunt, you know. <laughs> Yeah, this podcast is going to have to get an explicit rating when I upload it. Well, coming from a Golden Dawn background, going into masonry, I think you can kind of realize why the Golden Dawn exists. Um, There were obviously masons that wanted to dig further and didn't want to use masonry as a political structure or just kind of like a, a secret government. They actually wanted to learn, you know, esoteric teachings. Yeah. And so that's where I think the story with Mackenzie start is that they're they're obviously done with their current lodge they've gotten involved with the society rosicrucianists and anglius which is the rosicrucian masonry and then from there they took it to their own thing. yeah are you are you also a member of the sria i am not um it's on my list uh, <laughs> i was gonna say man you got to get with that you're, you're missing some degrees but you know knowing brothers that have joined the dawn that have been sri they do get taught the lesser vanishing rituals, so they do get a leg up, I think, on the Don studies. In the SRIA? Yeah. So the yeah. SRIA has retrofitted themselves with Golden Dawn rituals? No, I would say the, quite the opposite, the other way around. Because you got to remember that uh, Mathers and Mackenzie were both SRIA masons before they created the Don. Of course, but the, goal, the ritual, the pentagram was taken out of the cipher manuscripts uh, so i assumed therefore i just i just ignorantly perhaps assumed that it had no predecessor or uh, antecedent in the societas rosicruciana in anglia no it actually has roots in it for example when um, for well, example when we call the angels oh that's um, wonderful the four angels when we call them they're in different places uh, that particular passage comes from what they call the Jewish Cain prayer, I believe, C-A-I-M prayer. Well, that's interesting because I it definitely, definitely exists in um, within the uh, the breastplate of St. Patrick prayer. Mm-hmm. And that's old as hell. That's really old. But what you'll notice is that the original Jewish Cain prayer, which is kind of like a, a bedtime prayer, um, the what? angels are changed. They're in different positions. Man, any prayer is better than lay me down to sleep if the Lord kills me. Like <laughs> my soul to keep, right? Bedtime, bedtime. You're gonna die. If not, good for you. I mean, I guess that made sense in in the days of 
of no medicine and sickness and and early deaths. But these days, oh boy, I think is what a horrible thing to have a child invoking as they go to sleep at night. Yeah, I can't imagine. Can't imagine. You may as well have them summon Abaddon. Well, and it, it shows you how much, you know, fear has been kind of cooked into the croissant of what Catholic is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Le croissant de catholique? Right, because you know, it's just layers and layers and layers of misinterpretation that creates this huge body of fear behind everything they did. Interesting. So you're going to do the SRA, of course, one day because you got it. You got to get all your brownie points. Um, <laughs> you know, um, I don't know that I will. It's it's interesting, but I think you have to have been a master of a lodge to yeah. do it, which means you need to put in another eight years of just intense memorization. Well, we're still pretty young yet. I mean, we're Gen Xers, but we're young Gen Xers, right? We're like, we're as young as you can be and still be a Gen Xer. True, true. Um, so I'm fascinated. One of the things I'm fascinated to talk to you about ever since, of course, meeting you at Pantheacon in February is the fact that you have such advanced knowledge in masonry in both rites, as well as, uh, as well as, uh, you've gone through all of the Amork, the ancient mystical order, Rosea Crucis levels in Amork, correct? That is correct. Yeah. So you've gone through all those. Oh, now your voice is way louder. That's good. Can we keep you at that volume? Yeah, it should be a little better now. Oh, groovy. Groovy. Um, which, of course, I, I abandoned that early on because I found I found a, a, a functioning full-time Golden Dawn Temple, Temple Tehuti in Vancouver, which was very, very lucky, of course. Like, lucky as fuck. I mean, shit, most of, my, most of the best things in my life, really, they, they really do represent preparation meets luck. You know, that's all part of it, right? I mean, it's huge. <laughs> I mean, when you're on the path, things just start to line up. I think it comes. Uh, people would love to hear us talk for synchronicity about synchronicity for two hours, but you know, they can just go read the secret, right? Right, totally. So I'm curious to ask you and and get more of your perspective on that intersection of the full system of masonry meets the full system of Amwork plus. You recently became an initiate in, in a Golden Dawn order, which I'm very familiar with. And I believe you, you did the first two, first grade or first two grades? Uh, just first grade for now. So you're neophyte in the Golden Dawn, but you are a super superhero mason and divine demiurge of Amork. <laughs> yeah, no, I was the master of the Santa Rosa Perneos for two years. I joined the TMO Martinism, finished all the degrees with them. Um, then I moved over to the ORC, which is a different uh, stem of Martinism, where I'm just a what they call a, a SSI. Who who runs the ORC that, you know, the other ORC? Because obviously I've got an ORC, but who runs the other ORC? The ORC that I work with is run by a gentleman named David Hogan. He's the same one who runs the OGD, Golden Dante. Oh, yeah, so this is all part of Martin slash Zalewski's crew. Sort of. The Martinism, yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Like, Mar not Martinism, but Martin. <laughs> yes, it comes through. Martin, my former roommate from the late 90s. 
Correct. Yes. Well, that's it makes sense that both of us created an ORC because guess what? We spent a lot of time together. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the dude dated my little sister. I remember that, yeah. Yeah, well. <laughs> anyway. We talked together. <laughs> oh, it's all, it's ancient history, ancient history, brother. Um, but it's interesting because uh, and actually I've gotten quite a few comments on my uh my podcast and pages curious about the different evolutions of golden dawn and other orders and how they moved around and formed so that's something people are actually interested in hearing about i think it gives people a lot of comfort to understand the vicissitudes of these paths as because i I think it opens up people's sense of confidence in that it doesn't really matter so much which path they take it just so matters that they take a path Right, Correct. and sometimes that path changes. Sometimes there's splits in the road, and you change course. But ultimately, we're still all heading to the peak of the mountain. Correct. I think all traditions are doing that same thing, right? Uh, masked in a different, you know. Costumes. Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, and you start to see it too. I mean, coming in as a mason, seeing. I mean, it's very basic compared to GD or. Martinism. Do you think so? Would you say that the masonry is basic compared to the GD or Martinism? You have to dig really deep to find the symbolism that's on the surface in GD and Martinism. Huh. Like, for example, um, in a lot of ritual initiations, you'll have a candidate stop at each station, whether it's for consecration, of to learn handshakes, to learn different things, but it's always cardinal directions. So you see this ritual room set atop the tree of life. And with every ritual, you can you can literally lay it out. So it's basically a Kabbalist, um, Kabbalist map. Yeah. Uh, but for most, you know, I think today's students that are, have a lot more research and data at their disposal are going to be more inclined for more elaborate ritual. Right. You know, for baby boomers that came back in the 1940s and 50s from war, I think, you know, Masonry kind of became that fraternal organization, you know, that it is today. But at its very core, it has very esoteric roots that just aren't being talked about a lot. Yeah, that's interesting. Why do you think it's not talked about? Um, I think it's uncomfortable for a lot of older Masons who are still, you know, let, let's be honest, Masonry in America has the sacred volume of law that we use is the Holy Bible. It wasn't the only book that we use. In fact, when we initiate, you know, an Islamic member, we're going to use the Quran. We're going to use a book that's binding on his obligation. But most Masonic lodges, um, older members will actually look down upon us for doing rituals with the Quran. Mm. Because there tends to be a very big, you know, Catholic Christian background in masonry that just has a backbone from the last hundred years. Interesting. Too much Christian stuff, hey? (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Do you know that song by the band slash album that's really famous, The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn? This is a trick question? No, no, it's this is real. This is real, brother. It's actually the first the first episode of Very Honored Frater BT 
Edward Reeb's uh, Essa Terriner podcast is an interview with that guy, and he did this, wrote all these initiation, all these all the rituals of the GD as songs and performed them at CBGBs. Charged everyone six dollars and sixty six cents. There was a lineup around the block. Everyone had exact change because the owner was like, "How the fuck are you going to make change for like two hundred people paying six sixty six? But everyone had it. It was an amazing night. And then they put out this album called Hermetic or the Golden Dawn, and they performed like the LBRP and the Watchtower and a bunch of other rituals. But they have one song that that that's amazing. It goes like this: something like. Westwood, Westwood, Min and Win Westcott formed the temple. Mathers sighed and slowly joined the same. A.E. Wait came on too strong. That Christian stuff just don't belong. <laughs> That's funny. It's amazing. It's amazing. Definitely. But it's, any, at, the, everyone but should... it's at the root of everything. I mean, when you look at. <laughs> When you look at Dr. Falcon, you know, back at the the, the Fire A. Ra Temple, <laughs> I mean, when he died, he was also a member of the Order of the Round Table. And the Order of the Round Table is a very strict Christian organization. And from what I understand is even on Falcon's grave, there's inscriptions, you know, um, regarding Christianity, which is kind of interesting. He spent a lot of time in that order. Interesting, yeah. I, I read recently a bit bit more about the Order of the Round Table. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, no, I, uh, I think, you know, a lot of people are very critical of the Christian element in occultism and the mysteries and, uh, and don't like the Bible. And it's just, I always say, you know, I understand that the versions of it you've seen or that the, the natural conclusions you see that are drawn from what happens in it are problematic but it really is crucial stuff i mean i recommend everyone read uh the famous writer northrop fry's book the great code and he was a he was a, li- a literary uh scholar of english literature and the great code looks just at the role that the bible both the the torah tanakh and new testament have played in the history of western culture intellectual development and literature and it's whether you like it or not like just go on netflix most of the fantasy like almost every show on there is based in the bible mm-hmm. like not every show but you know what i mean like everything from you know supernatural sabrina the teenage witch any like this new thing the pale horse with with your man from dark city like all those things like they're they're all grounded in all these like how many how many movies have been made based on the book of job Yeah. So, no, it's a repeating hero story. And you, not to go Joseph Peterson on you, but yeah. I mean, Disney, everything's been based on that you know, hero's journey story. Yeah. Did you say not to go Jordan Peterson on me? <laughs> <laughs> Joseph Peterson on you, right? He's hmm. the big one that's all about the hero's journey. But you, Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell is <laughs> about the hero's journey. Jordan Peterson's the Canadian. Thank you you, you thank conflated you. them. You conflated Joseph Campbell with Jordan Peterson. You know who would love that? No one, because Jordan Peterson is is not a fan of Campbell. He's more a fan of he's a fan of Campbell's superior, more profound scholar, Mircha Eliada, the religious scholar. Jo- jo- Joseph Campbell's sort of like the poor man's Mircha Eliada. He's he's much more. He's a popularizer of religious history, whereas Eliada is the the true scholar of it. Um, don't don't tell any Star Wars fans I said that. Gotcha. No, I apologize. 
<laughs> I don't apologize. I'm taking the piss. Yeah. No, it happens all the time. You know, it's like you do all this work and you do, you know, you travel so many streams and names and symbols. And <laughs> Every once in a while, you, you got a freebie you can, you can pull back. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I often think is like, you know, it's easy to rag on the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament, but they're both formed from earlier from the Babylonian Talmuds, the Babylonian stories, and Egyptian mythology. They really are. I mean, scholars for all of history were curious if there was traces of the Hebrew Bible myths, especially like Noah and the floods and all those things, if there was traces of them prior to that. And it was only in the 20th century, I believe, that we discovered the Babylonian Bible or the Babylonian Talmuds and we, those stories. And it's like, oh, this is exactly where the Garden of Eden story came from. The, the Hebrews didn't make it up. They were just carrying it from their time in the exile in Babylon and before that in Egypt. I mean, because Judaism really developed out of Egypt. He, you know, there wasn't really a Israel before sure. the, sure. the freedom, freeing of all these slaves in Egypt. Um, That's no, kind of, I agree, hundred percent. Fascinating, yeah. So, like, uh, it's all part of our human history. Not to you don't have to syncretize it all together, but they have. Yeah, they, there's there's definitely similarities. It's the human story, man. It's the human story. Mm-hmm. We're all one. We're all we're all unique and beautiful snowflakes. Yeah, and evil corrupt bastards, right? But we're trying to connect the two of them together, right? We're trying to unify opposites, right? <laughs> We're we're all part of the same decaying organic mass matter. Yeah, I mean, it, life eats life. Man. It, we're we're a part of it. That's the Fight Club version, right? Yep. So so when you think about when you think in your head about your experiences in the Amorc initiations in Masonry and now beginning in the Golden Dawn, how do, how does that exist in your brain? Because once I found the Golden Dawn, I did the training, graduated went through everything I could go through essentially, you know, and, and, and I've just been following that path, that trajectory ever since I didn't, don't need to, you know, be part, you know, be under anyone's thumb anymore, but that's my path. I haven't really focused on any other paths other than incorporating Yeats's Celtic mysteries and finishing his work, of course. But for you, you've got these three major traditions alive in your life and in your spiritual being. How does that feel? What's that like? I'm curious. What would like I think about all the time since I met you, what would I be like? How would I be different if I had had all of your experiences? It's a blessing and a curse, right? I mean, there is something very, you know, something to be said about following one path and, and just taking it um, as far as you can go. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, I would probably argue for people starting out to just do that. Uh, but for, for me, as a recording engineer, I'm kind of an analytical thinker. So, you know, when a lot of people look at a studio of a thousand knobs, I was the kid that wanted <laughs> to learn every knob worked, how it, how it, you know, and each rabbit hole that I went into eventually connected back. So I think when I started Esoterics, I did the same thing. I did my first degree in masonry, my first degree in handwork, and my first degree in Martinism, all at the same time. So um, you could almost say that you're spiritually capable as well as physically capable of multi-tracking. 
<laughs> there you go. I mean, but it's it's tough for for mentors, right? Because every mentor from every order you join wants to see a specific change. Um, so, you know, like for example, when you join the GD, people are like, oh, wait till you get to one, you know, wait till you get to 110 and, you know, get in the mud and wade deep. Where I felt like with each tradition, I've had to like restart, act a fool on the neophyte, on the, <laughs> you know, and just kind of be humble. It's actually helped me keep a humble attitude towards all uh, traditions. Well, that's really good. Yeah. Because they all expect change, they all want to. Well, that's yeah, the, the thing, CD. like, yeah, if you've achieved, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, mastery in one, one path, how easy is it, right, to then go and start behaving like you don't have that, those qualities? Yeah, I mean, put it, into pers- put it into perspective. I mean, like, for example, like, being a Mason, I had already done all the degrees, I had done my 32nd degree, and then I joined the Golden Dawn as a brand new student, right? when you join the new order you're expected to be right back to the the basics you're stripped again now imagine what it's like thinking you've achieved some sort of form of enlightenment and then someone saying put the hoodwing back on exactly (laughs) so it's good i think and you can see why you know mathers and, and mckenzie wanted to do this because you can get really high on your own ego with in esoterics quickly uh really yeah right, right. <laughs> unfortunately it's it's more it often especially during this crazy occult revolution we're experiencing it seems to be more and more the the uh, rule and not the exception of of egotism and uh well it's hard i mean being blessed with think of it like a secret right if i told you a, a secret about a corporation and i said you know this is between you and i blah 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 people love you know secret and for privileged information right yeah well people love to be special exactly and, it, and more importantly people like to tell people that they are special right oh god yeah well right. so uh, when you when you first join an order you you are given information that wasn't there for you before yeah so i think most people tend to go well you're ignorant <laughs> i think that's why it's really important for the in with to keep the four hermetic principles in your soul right you know mm-hmm. you dare you will but then you've got to stay fucking silent yeah like i was going through the golden dawn from 15 to 19 for the outer order so i graduated the golden dawn a couple months before i graduated from grade 12 and it was very hard for me to not let anyone know what i was doing and it was it, it made me feel at times like i wasn't seen people didn't understand me and if i could only tell them more about myself they would be nicer to me but i couldn't tell them anything about any of that stuff at all where do you start right right so (laughs) i mean i knew i was doing work that made me feel good about who i was and and challenged and elevated my soul but i couldn't explain that to anyone in any way so i just had to sort of really learn to live it and at at the very most teach who i to people about who i was by the example i set and that was hard especially for as a teenager who was sort of a pariah you gotta try it right until you try it i think that by giving people experiences even even as a teacher to younger students i i have to be careful not to give them my experiences but to give them the information 
they seek to get them closer to where they'll experience them, right? Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, wisdom can't be just given, right? You have to understand it, you know, through being on. Well, that's what people don't get about, like, the mysteries. Going back to being an armchair magician or a theoretical occultist, the mysteries is the experience, if you yes. don't have the, if you just have theory, you don't have experience, and the mysteries are the experience. That's the thing you can't communicate to anyone because if you don't do the work, you don't experience the mystery, and that's that. Well, and some people, that's enough, right? I mean, for some folks, just understanding it will be enough enlightenment for them in their lifetime. Some people don't even want to bother with it, right? Like in well, my household, most people mention God. You know? I, I like I like Valentin Tomberg. The he was the student of Rudolf Steiner's wife, who wrote Meditations on the Tarot. Right? You know, he says in in Meditations on the Tarot that he basically says that hermeticism is sort of for like the spiritually disabled. <laughs> <laughs> he talks about it almost like, hey, this is a path for people who aren't competent enough to do anything else. <laughs> You know, there's some truth to that. Well, he uh, says he I says mean, great scientists, artists, and poets are the spiritual superiors of the hermeticist, and I love that. Oh, well, I agree, hundred percent. I mean, especially as an artist and a master musician, right? I mean, even like, yeah, I mean, in in recording, there are so many secrets and things you can do out there. But there's even more. There's there's just they're just constantly changing and happening. But when a guy like me or you find something like hermeticism where the science is so vast it's just like you can't learn everything are you saying that hermeticism is more than just the seven principles (laughs) oh we're talking about kabbalion right (laughs) so while i was doing my live stream um Arissa Victor stopped by with her uh, her social uh, support worker friend, who, and that's wonderful. She came all the way across the ten acre property to to visit me, and uh, and the, my witchy neighbor Eve and her newly elected to the Green Party in Sonoma County, Rebel Fagan. Amen for that guy. Yeah, good yeah. for him. He's elected a representative. No one, we, we, we all were like happy for him to run, but we never in a million years thought he'd win the Green Party seat like and win the election, but he did. So go magic work. Yeah. Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, I love the Green Party as much as anyone. Unfortunately, they usually aren't capable of doing much due to, you know. Yeah. <laughs> need I say more? Interests. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I think in British Columbia, the Green Party's barely got a few uh, any 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 points on uh, the BC Marijuana Party. Uh, the BC Marijuana Party managed to get pot legalized. The BC Green Party actually they recently joined with our New Democratic Party, which because we have a three party system, so they united together. They merged because by combining their seats, they knocked out the Liberals. Yeah, yeah, which was a which was quite a coup, but also sort of brilliant because the liberals in Canada, of course, are are actually conservatives, and then our conservative party is actually really conservative. Gotcha. So we got two conservative parties: the conservatives and liberals, and then we got the New Democratic Party, who we've been punishing for most of my life since when I was little. They were elected, and the first thing they did was doubled our taxes. Oh great. <laughs> yeah. Great. Even 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 liberal even socialist Canadians were nonplussed. <laughs> yeah. I remember being like seven years old or six years old in the grocery store and my mom like cursing under her breath. She's like, We have to be careful now because the taxes just doubled. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. 
Okay, let's not talk about Canada. No, but you, you bring up an interesting subject. Uh, for example, when I saw you uh, talk about W.B. Yeats and the political interests in Ireland, I mean, a lot of people... I, I know that the, um, the Illuminati idea nowadays has gone way conspiracy, but it's no surprise that both Rosicrucians, Masonic bodies have all used the... You know, the, the esoteric school is a way for political freedom. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe not so, not so much nowadays, but it certainly did. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it could be argued that we should do more of that. Um, I don't know if that's a great argument, but... Well, it's hard to say. I mean, we'd like to think that the... You know, when they say history is written by the winners, right? So when we read the American history, we read America as being free. But really, you know, these Masons were a bunch of traitors, right? Hmm. They came here, they worked here from England, and they decided to screw the Queen and use Masonic, you know, authority to kind of All right. create an organization for it, right? That might be something to do with why uh, English masonry is still not quite as inviting to us North American masons as we would like. True, definitely. I was told when I was initiated at Trinity Lodge in Vancouver, which is, you know, they have their own skyscraper. And I, I really joined partly because I was a little curious, but also my family's like five generations of masons, but then there was no men for two generations. So my grandma was like, oh, she thought it would be great if I continue the tradition, even though she had you know her fat her father my great-grandfather was his last name was gage and he was the head of the masons for quite a while and they even had his name in the trinity lodge ledgers and all this stuff he had met the british royalty when they came to town because that's mandatory that when the when the british royalty come to canada or to one of the provinces in canada they have to meet with the supreme mason or whatever the name is of the law the main lodge yeah, they have yeah, a formal definitely. dinner and it's mandatory. That's fascinating oh, yeah. to me. Definitely. Yeah, there's a lot of power actually in it, even though not as much as probably the conspiracy theorists would like to imagine. Well, I mean, you know, most of the conspiracy theories are kind of fake, but I will throw. I mean, I'll throw you a bone. I mean, well, except for, for David example, Ike, right? David Ike is legit. Well, like, there's some really <laughs> <I'm joking>. interesting. <laughs> I know Masonic history is probably not as you know glorified as esoteric teachings, but. When you look at the history of Masons, I mean, there are some things to feed into conspiracy theory. For example, the Underground Railroad. The Underground Railroad was constructed through Prince Hall Masons and Masonic Halls throughout the U.S. Really? That's a good People, thing, isn't it? Yeah, you know, we read history about, you know, thousands of African Americans being brought from the South to the North with no trace in the middle of the night. Wow. Well, what do you I had no idea that had a Masonic connection. Yeah, we were hiding them in lodges and then bringing them to the next town lodge. No shit. In, you were hiding them in fucking lodges? Yeah, just like all the esoteric teachings. We would hide all the Martinist teachings during times of war. Yeah, we've been kind of a sea house uh, for a lot of esoteric teachings. Huh. Wow. So if if I end up homeless here and can't get back to Canada, I should just go knock on a Masonic lodge. There we go. We'll hide you. You're the property manager, right? You could just hide me in a coffin for a couple months? Uh, there's tons of uh, Masonic stories throughout uh, World War II where Masonic lodges were being used to funnel, you know, famous scientists, politicians. Wow. You know, because that, because Adolf was one of the first to really come after the lodges. Ad Adolf actually, who? Adolf who? 
Hitler, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he wanted, he wanted, I mean, more so, his, <laughs> but more so his, uh, his propaganda manager, Joseph Goebbels. He was fascinated with masonry and esoteric culture. And he basically stole all that stuff. You know, he stole what he could. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, like even the Greek political party, the Golden Dawn. God, God damn it! Um, their their introductory textbook for their new recruits was uh, Goebbels' book. Yeah. Was it Goebbels or was it the other dude? Whatever. They're all fucking awful. Yeah, no, it's terrible. Just a quick shout out to any white supremacists listening to this podcast. Yeah, you're not welcome. Oh no, you're very welcome. You are welcome to become on this podcast. I just I just want to say fuck you. There you go. Shout out to white supremacists. Nazi punks fuck off. Come come on to this podcast and I will I will insult you a second time. Feche la vache. Sorry, I just watched uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail the other day. Hadn't seen it in uh, many years. Nice, that's an oldie but goodie, right? It's a good one. It's a gooder. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. I actually think I might like Ho- the Holy Grail more than Life of Brian. For, yeah, no, I think so too. For all you youngins listening, Monty Python is a British sketch group that did some movies and had John Cleese and Terry Gilliam and and all these others. You got to check out Monty Python if you don't know it. I'm terrified actually by the idea that there might be a generation born that's not familiar with Monty Python and Faulty Towers and all that stuff and Terry Gilliam's work. Yeah, I mean, but imagine our you know elders. There's probably a lot of work that we haven't been exposed to. That yeah, but that was all shit. Of course it was. <laughs> I love Lucy or the Carol Burnett show. Crap, all garbage. Total crap. Carol Burnett, she she had no talent. She was a lazy, <laughs> lazy woman who didn't work at all. <clears throat> a note to our listeners. There's uh, dry humor. Trigger warning, dry humor. Irony yeah. is defined where the actual meaning is the opposite of the literal meaning. As we all know from the classic film, Reality Bites. Right, right. Yeah. So. But you know, going back to drawing parallels, I mean, you know, in masonry, you're you're taught that we that gravity creates verticals. It, it's a constant, no matter what, up and down, ascension and back, is a given. But by horizontally, we can understand how to create levelness, which is the basics of building and construction, but very symbolic of the Malkuth cross, right? The cross of Malkuth. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. What we're saying, you know? Interesting. I'm just, I'm formula that, that causes a lot of thoughts to well up in my mind and I'm trying to give them form to a, make the right question. I know you've got so much to share and it's, it, I was struggling a lot uh, since I met you to constantly think of how to phrase things in ways that it gets the, you know, the, the wheat from the chaff, because, you know, given that we both have these mu- musical predilections, shall we say, mm-hmm. and we, we were jamming at the hotel at Pantheacon right away almost. And we were jamming in a, in a special way. Would you agree? Yeah. 
Definitely. You know that special kind of jamming I'm talking about? It's not two no, people goes, both playing music. It's actually two people fucking the same groove. Yeah. You know? I mean, like, so what are the chances? Right? We, we, I mean, what are the chances? Because there's a lot of, there was a lot of musicians there, but the way we were playing, it was less, we weren't, we didn't get, it didn't matter what notes we were playing. All that mattered was are the relationship of those notes to the groove. And the way we hit that pocket or pushed it or pulled it, that was what it's about. And that's what real music's about. And I think there's strong analogies in that to magic and spirituality. Oh, that's that's magic in a nutshell. I mean, I mean, you know how it is when you jam with somebody. When you when you get in the jam, when you get in the moment, light, everything becomes quantum. You know, um, for those You just said quantum, so I have to do a, 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 a bong hit. There you go. There you go. But I mean, in all reality, I mean, it's kind of like in jazz was based on that theory of expression. And if everybody can get on that same wavelength, then you can ride that, quantum, that quantum structure until you realize. Oh my you know, god! This podcast episode is totally gonna be taken down. <laughs> Pardon my coughing. No, but you know how it is when you get into a jam with somebody, and it's it's just perfect. If you stop to think about it for even a split second, you're no oh. longer in the... It's gone. The yeah, it's gone. It's gone. Yeah, music... Because it's all focus. When it's you're playing focus. music to that level, it's really like that principle of the magician card, which is which is concentration and focus, to the point that your whole being becomes subsumed in that single point, The or as the, you know, OTO likes to say, uh, uh, the uh, Hagid. Hagit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hadit, Hadit, not Hagith, that's a different spirit. Hadit, right, that point. And when you're in the point, you're gone. You cease to exist. All that exists is that point, and you are that point. The point is you, and you're, ugh, it's just, it's completely, completely transformative, really, is the word, I think, transformative. It is. It's transformative, and think about the the binary approach to that right where you've got two different mind frequencies focusing on the same jam but still focused on the point it's like the two people become one exactly well that's why i cra- yeah that's why I, I crassly often think about it as this sort of psychosexual experience even with another dude who i'm jamming with because you both are hitting that same point and to hit that point you have to both cease being separate entities you have to become the same entity and you are consumed and united in that point exactly and i think that's the point is that the the two opposing or joining points create an egregore i like that that's like the pillars of force and form uniting in the middle pillar Exactly, and it creates an egregore that only we're creating at that moment. Now, if another musician heard us and pulled out a conga drum and somehow could ride into that point, it would be an even greater egregore, and it would create almost like a harmony in different points in time. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of the basis of somatics, if, if you're familiar with somatic and resonant frequencies. I'm, I'm not. I'm not an so, award-winning engineer like you are. Well, I mean, you know, not to go Kabbalian on you, right? Everything vibrates, right? But, but, if you, but <laughs> Only if you have enough batteries, brother. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but that's a great example right there, right? Because, because uh, for example, let's say you walked into a room and there's the humming of a dryer. In the U.S., that's going to be 60 hertz. In the 
United Kingdom, that's going to be 50 hertz. If you have two devices in the same room that are ringing at different frequencies, like the hum of the refrigerator and the, the hum of your computer or whatever, if you sit in that room long enough, a third frequency will get created by your brain. And that's what's called that binaural beat. Wow. So it's not actually there, but it is. And I think that um, we're, we're technically playing with this as magicians in meditation all the time. Well, yeah, the nature of how we vocally vibrate, I mean, Golden Dawn magic especially, is primarily uh, the creation of sound joined and interplayed with the uh, visualization of colors. Correct. And that colors and sound, I mean, that's sort of, in some ways, that's, to me, the alpha and omega of the fabric of nature. Definitely. And there's lots of systems. I mean, you know, the GD had its own color system. The Tatawas had their own system. Uh, Paul Foster Case and Bota had his own color system. Oh, that reminds me. That's what Arissa said. So when Arissa was there, she's, so she was the protege of Jason Lauderhand, who was the protege of Paul Foster Case. She's mm-hmm. 81 now. And so someone on the live stream asked a question, and it was a good question that I didn't even know existed. And he was quoting the question from someone else on the Magic Hour podcast who said it. And the question was, did Paul Foster Case help William Walker Atkinson, a.k.a. the three initiates, write the Kabbalion? So I asked her, and she, she, she often, like, you know, she's got vascular dementia. So she, you know, she's told me about the same cat story a million times and that's cool but when she talks about magic with me and her books and her experience in the mysteries she sharpens up in the same way that my mom who's in a similar sickly state uh sharpens up when i ask her about astrology it's like the person just comes back fully to the front so when i said did that happen was this the case she became instantly more cogent than you would see her 90 percent of the time it was like oh yes absolutely i'm like and how do you know that she's like because he told me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was a is... whole romantic period, you know, during that time, right? Amwork was just getting kicked off. Foster Case was down there. You had Hollywood. You had a lot of money, a lot of artists. So yeah, there's Jack... a lot of offshoots down there for sure. Yeah, Hollywood. Yeah, you, that was the time. That was the Agape Lodge days, right? Exactly. <clears throat> Yeah. I mean, and I have, like, posters from Amwok back in, like, the 1930s. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of students back then. Hmm. It was a big deal back in the 30s. It's hard to imagine. I mean, I went, my mom drove me down from Vancouver with my sister and my best friend, uh, Daniel, uh, to Amwork in San Jose when I was 14, I believe. Mm-hmm. It was the summer after grade 8. And uh, a year, a year, a year. To, uh, the, it was the summer before the summer I I got it. I found the Golden Dawn, and I, she took me down there, and I saw the, the Rosicrucian Park and the shrines and the Egyptian Museum. They wouldn't let me into the library though, because I was only a junior order of torchbearers. I wasn't an adult member, um, so they wouldn't let me into the library at all. But it was an amazing experience. I'm like, wow, this is huge. This is a this is a what hundred million dollar facility at least. How did this come to be? I couldn't believe easy. it. Easy, yeah, easy, right? Easy. Well, it, I mean, I can, I can that 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 property I and all this shit on it's probably worth like five hundred million dollars, 
right? It's a massive institution. Nowadays, for sure. It's a massive. So, so it must have been huge. It was huge. It was the big deal. I mean, you know, Walt Disney was one of the you know primary members. No way. Um, A lot of a lot of people with a lot of money, man, that were involved in Amwork in the early days. Wow. Because you got to realize that um, that um, the gentleman who started Amwork, Harvey Spencer Lewis was actually a marketing manager. Huh. So so here's a guy kind of like today, you know, you see you know you see a lot of occult people trying to create something monetary but they're not very market friendly. Yeah, I I noticed that as Harvey, a lot, especially given my background's marketing and I'm watching all these people around me, especially especially people I was trained by trying to do things without the skill set I have and it's like, "Oh my god." And then there's me and my last thing I ever want to do is like do something like that oh my god like get people into bitcoin or fucking something exactly like that. join my golden dawn so, order so and harvey and buy buy shares in bitcoin <laughs> well what he did was that he he wanted he had heard of the you know the idea of a true rosicrucian order but he was in competition with sria masons who had a rosicrucian order already that had chartered from I believe France yeah Harvey who wanted to create his own order and have some sort of a business aspect to it went out to France and basically exhausted every contact and resource to try to find somebody who was an adept in a said Rosicrucian order he finally uh, apparently he had been months traveling trying to find any you know any residue of an order when he did finally come across, I believe, an older gentleman, I believe well into his 80s, uh, in his dowage, and he, he convinced this man to, to initiate him and to create a charter of Rosicrucianism into the U.S. Um, from what I understand, the initiations were very simple. The guy didn't really remember a lot of information, um, but... Regardless, Harvey came back with a charter. He this came back to the U.S. Sort of a, a charter. lineage jackpot, pot, right? Yeah, Here's the lineage. The, I don't remember to- much else, so just <laughs> make it up for yourself. So when he came back to the U.S., he created the Rosicrucian Order and then started trademarking the name Rosicrucian. Oh God, yeah. Don't 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 say that to B- Fred or BT or Edward because. Man, I've never heard a, a, a line of cussing like like when he talks about that. It's it's kind of like everybody's family history. There's nothing's perfect, right? There's always uh, skeletons in the closet. People and so so Harvey basically created the charter and started to patent the word Rosicrucian. The the uh, French and English SRA SRIA Masons weren't happy, so it created a legal battle. Harvey, being a marketing manager and very savvy businessman, knew that the Masons weren't ready to even go into battle about it. And within a few years, he was able to successfully grab the Rosicrucian order, and the Masons could do nothing about it. Hmm. And at least that's the Amarch portion of Rosicrucianism. I can't speak for all of Rosicrucianism, because there really technically isn't an order, right? It's an invisible order, right? Well, how do you know someone's a true Rosicrucian? Tell me. You can't. Exactly. Because the, the Fama Fraternity at Tatus was all about that, right? 
exactly. after that thing was published, everybody wanted to claim that they were the order. And if you want the most comical, ingenious, yet scholarly play on that joke you can ever find, you got to read Umberto Eco's Foucault's Pendulum, because he takes the whole I'm not a Rosicrucian thing to the nth degree in the most hilarious dialogues and narratives you could ever want in a thousand page book based on the Western mysteries. That's a that's awesome. a fiction novel. Yeah, I highly <laughs> recommend everyone read Umberto Eco's Foucault's Pendulum. The chat there's ten chapters, they're a couple hundred pages each, and they start at Keter and end with Malkut. That's great. I want to check that out. Oh, it's it, it's going to blow your fucking mind if you've never read Umberto Eco before. Like, this is the kind of guy who would write page-long paragraphs that were one sentence and do it properly. <laughs> and by properly, I don't mean grammatically, like not breaking grammatical rules. I mean uniting grammatical rules, logic, with content, form, and beauty beauty amazing yeah amazing. his first book echo's phd th- thesis was called uh uh the aesthetics of thomas aquinas interesting what okay. an amazing phd title eh yeah no definitely like jesus he's also written books like the aesthetics of chaosmos the name of the rose which famously became a movie with sean connery and christian slater and uh and now is uh, also an italian made miniseries <clears throat> so yeah, Umberto Eco is uh, he he understood esotericism in the Western system very well. He's the professor of semiotics. He was the first professor in the world of semiotics at the University de Bologna. But he also smoked like three packs a day, so he died a few years ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Like some of the most well-respected occultists and people, the Giving Tree, so to speak, are the people I go to for information. You know, it's kind of like the old uh, Tibetan, you know happy monk that's drunk all the time because of all the truth he knows, right? You tend to find that a lot in a lot of these older oh, esoteric yeah. scholars, right? Well, uh, just at our the uh, Fellowship of Isis, so Isis Oasis here at their uh, see, uh, the convocation where they ordain their new clergy members and have a four days of lectures. I was the, the penultimate, I was the I was not the penultimate, I was the final lecture. In fact, I had to th- throw out in front of a hall uh, half filled with people my entire presentation because they had built a final altar to Isis in the hall, in the theater, in the temple for the last ceremony and it was blocking the white screen uh, behind the stage so I couldn't do the whole PowerPoint I'd I had I'd never want did a power, made a PowerPoint this good in my life before, and it was all about the sign of the Enter and the sign of silence, the you know the the sign yeah. of Horus and the sign of Harpocrates, and so I had to throw it away. And instead, I did Godform work, like advanced level Godform work, and followed by invocation of Isis, which led to some people crying. One person walking out when they said I didn't pronounce the divine names in the proper Hebrew form, and uh, a whole bunch of other experiences, and. Uh, you know, you got me a, quite a bit of respect from the uh, the clergy and the priests and priestesses of the Fellowship and Temple of Isis here, but um, they, uh, oh my God, I shouldn't have smoked that weed. This is what happens to me, man. I'm such a lightweight. <laughs> you bring you bring up a good point, though, um, in terms of vowing God names. Um, in my own experience of of pronouncing divine names over and over again, I find that the exact pronunciation and the way we vow 
vowel them are much different. <laughs> right? Am I, am I yeah. correct? Well, so I always like to use the basic uh, uh, philological example of, found in the word gabura, right? The word for power, or it's not really power. It, um, well, it is power, I guess. Power is a good good translation. Sure. It's not it's not as complicated a word as hesed, which is actually a really mystical noun in Hebrew. Like you want to you want to you want to fucking warp a Hebrew professor's mind or uh, a Hebrew language teacher's mind, even of even of biblical Hebrew. Ask them what hesed means. They will they will take two steps back and put their hands up, like in the Orantes gesture, and say, "Well, um, okay." There are some words in Hebrew that are so strange, old, and mystical, they don't even really have a specific meaning. They mean, they mean too much. And that's what I, what I call the theocratic meaning of, uh, you know, of re- referencing the bod- part of the body of God. Theocratic with an S, not a C, of course. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> like, so the word hesed, it doesn't mean mercy, man. It doesn't mean mercy. It, it means something that can't be expressed in words. Now, gabura is not like that. And so here's the philo- philological point about gabura. Um, or I guess it's a morphological point. Gabura, no, it may be phonemic. It might be, yeah. So gabura, the letter bet, <clears throat> was pronounced b up until like the 1920s, 1910s. And that's when Hebrew was revitalized because Hebrew had pretty much almost died out except outside of the rabbis. People spoke Yiddish and other versions. And so it was sort of almost a dwindled language. It was it was a sacred language, not as bad as things have gotten with Latin, but it was very similar to the role of Hebrew actually in Jesus' time when everyone speak, spoke Koine Greek or, or Aramaic, also called Chaldean, of course. And so the word Geburah in the 20th century became Geburah, right? So... If the word changed in such recent history, how on earth could you say what the proper pronunciation is? Would you say it's the old pronunciation because that's when, that's how it was said during those times when the grimoires were written, for example? Um, or would you say, you know, the way it's spoken by the, the, the mass of Hebrew speakers today is the proper way because it's their language, or secondarily, that's what will draw on the group unconscious mind of the linguistic sphere of the world. You know, you could sort of make either of those sort of arguments. So that's, that's when I always say, look, that is the best example of the fact that it does not matter how you pronounce it. In a, to, in a, to a certain extent, just like there's different systems for pronouncing Anakian. There's John Dee's method, there's the Golden Dawn method, and there's like what Lon Milo Duquette does, which I think is, is actually a beautiful harmonizing of the two. But I'm, you know, I, I'm quite familiar with all three. I always think when you learn a language, you should learn as many dialects of it as possible. And, and here's at the bottom end of the day, though, I think no matter what dialect of Anakian you choose to speak, to the angels, it probably all sounds like a like baby talk. Like we sort of know what you're saying. Are you saying that word? Do you want some ketchup, or do you want the? Yeah, okay, you know it. You know what I mean. I think it, when we speak in <laughs> knocking to angels, they're like, "Oh, that's cute. That's 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 adorable," you know. And then you, of course, you you invoke your your divine will and command them, and they're like, "Yes, we we understand who you are." They, but I think at some level, they're still also sort of like. Too bad you just can't speak our language better. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I agree. I, there's there's some clarity there. I mean, like, 
when you deduce all of, for example, Hebrew is an alpha, mystical alphabet without vowels, right? It has no vowels. We have to breathe the vowels into the words in order to make sense of the yep. words. And vowels weren't added till the early Middle Ages as well as punctuation. There was no punctuation and no vowels in the Hebrew scriptures until the early Middle Ages, like 5th, 6th, 7th century. Exactly. And in, in being from an audio you know, production background and synthesis, all sounds are created through four wave types. It's a sine wave, a saw wave, or a square wave, or noise. And the mixtures of all these things create every sound we have. In fact, you can successfully synthesize any natural sound using combinations of these three and the fourth waveforms, almost like elements. Wow. So when you look at every language, dude, that's phenomenal. At its its sum is sine waves, triangle waves, and square waves with noise. The only noise that we create as humans is through our mouth and our teeth. Wow. Everything else is vowels. It's my it's my own construction of my mouth that creates those different um, consonants. Consonants yeah. can't be created without a mouth. So I think the key word here is when we're voweling God names, they're, they're going to be much different than the Hebrew alphabet because we're working on the vowels themselves. Going back to Egypt, you've got Ra, the sun, Ma, the moon. And universally, these things can be understood. I can tell if you're tired if I'm English and looking at someone who's, you know, from China based on their yawn or based on the type of vowels they're using. So I think all language can be deduced to those vowels. Yeah, yeah, I like that. And do you know what's fascinating? I love that you brought this back into music because I just realized, you know, you're also a drummer, correct? Yes. As you were playing dobro with me, which is for those who don't know, it's one of those guitars you often lay on your lap and play. And it's got the metal top, right? It was a dobro. Yeah. Correct. Different, different from a steel guitar or a lap steel, and let's not get into the distinctions there because they're completely counterintuitive. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> when it comes to being also, so you're talking about these waveforms creating any sound, and it reminds me of the idea in the Book of the Law. Shout out to all you Thelemites, you'll love this. But the idea of the point of concentration of Hadith, the ethic of the magician, and that focus and concentration of will and, and loss of self in, through subsummation in the point. As a drummer, I've always heard um, from other drummers that, or for the best, from the best drummer, every time I work with the best drummers I know, like I got to work for quite a long time with uh, Katie Lang's old drummer, Randall Graves. And mm-hmm. uh, we shared a studio together. And like, you've, what a me! Like these guys are sick, right? Uh, I've not heard you drum yet, other than play cajon. But I assume, given the fact that you're in a in the metal genre, I assume you're a toy as a tiger. Um, <laughs> but the best drummers I've worked with have said to me, you know, because you know how we have songs in four four, douche 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 douche, or or six eight or nine or you know, I write a lot of songs in eleven and seven and twelve and stuff. But the best drummers I've worked with have always said to me, you know what, when I try to say, hey, this is 6-8, I want to go to 3-4 here. They look at me and they say, Eleguin, or that's not my name, I didn't say that, oops, shit. Okay, they say, Frater RC. <laughs> <laughs> they say, just play it. I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, 
Look, man, everything is in one. True. Crazy. I mean, the, all, all rhythms. Are, you can. All these you things can, are our attempt to describe the one. The experience. The one. Right? The like I this mean, logos yeah. idea. This this point. The single hadith. Yeah, like that Definitely. hadith point. Like so, you can say that a rhythm can be in eleven, in eleven twelve, or eleven eight. It can be in in six eight. But it's everything's always in one. That's fucking. When I heard that, it blew my mind. I was doing my first studio recording at the time, and it was a good recording. That's why I had good drummers. I got to open for like the Mothers of Invention, which was a fucking trip, even though I didn't know who they were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't tell anyone I said that. And uh, when I started to realize and think mystically, because I was, you know, I was, I was. 27 28 at the time and and i had had this long history in theology and seminary and golden dawn work and the idea that everything was in one and that was also the time i was learning how to really work with click tracks for doing demos so that we could record more cost effectively right it's so amazing to think that that all, all of it comes down to that right yeah Definitely. I mean, and how connected it is to esoteric practice. I mean, Pythagoras obviously associated each of the scale notes to a planet, right? Seven notes re- repeats itself on the eighth. I mean, that's the basis of the music we play today is all based on that theorem on the Tesseracts, right? Wow. I mean, he basically took each note, put a planet to it, called it the music of the spheres. Yes. And and ever since then, we've been associating an eight-note octave with Western culture. Amazing. Um, and even in other cultures, Egyptian scales, uh, melodic minors, you're going to find that, that eight-note scale. It's just different places of the eight notes. You're, you're, you're saying eight because you're counting the one again, right? Exactly. You got the seven yeah. plans and it repeats, yeah. right? So the higher self is the octave of the first note. Because one, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not quite, quite the musician you are. Um, you know, I, st- I didn't start playing music till I was 25, but I, so when I had to learn how to calculate, like if someone capoed up to the the fourth fret, I had to like count in my mind. You know, it's like okay, if they're playing an A minor shape on the fourth fret, then I have to count. You know, A minor, B, C. Right, and uh, well, and then there's the other count, which is eleven. You got to count. A, there's a you know, there's seven, and then there's eleven, and the seven's actually eight. Right? You, are you with me? Correct. Yeah. Okay. No, yeah. No, I, it's, 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 I love the fact that I said something that even to my own ears, though I understand it, sounds so absurd. I'm like, there's seven, and there's eleven, and the seven is actually eight, and you're like, correct. <laughs> Yeah, no, it is. Holy shit, that sounds fucking wacko, right? I mean, you know, New Age has taken this theory all the way looking at electromagnetic waves. I mean, there's technically a cosmic keyboard, right? All the way from the, you know, from the beta waves to the delta waves, up into radio frequencies. It's just the same notes repeating over and over again. Now, it seems to me there is a slight dichotomy or contradiction within that schema when you then take it into physical nature, scientifically understood nature, as well as cognitive biology, right? So when you look at those notes and those structures, you can see them as sort of mathematically defined within objective reality in nature, correct? Definitely. Like it's the it's hertz. geometry. Yeah, it's yeah. geometry, like 4400 and so on and so forth. 
you know, yeah. they go up by these exact numbers. But then when I read This Is Your Brain on Music and by read, I don't mean audiobook. I didn't go full Joe Rogan on it, but I, uh, I read, I wrote enough of it to the point where the science just got a bit, a bit, you know, too much for my, uh, chronic brain back in those days. Um, you know, I, 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 uh, I was going through uh, some stuff and, uh, but what I fascinating is that he also mentions that at the same time as this stuff is represented in nature, like the frequencies and the tonics and the, you know, the evolution of the harmonics, at the same time, our brain is what's interpreting these sounds. And he said that these sounds that sound musical to us, to another brain, might be complete nonsense or even not register at all. Definitely. And that's because yeah. of something called that we call cognitive biology or something like that. Yeah, and it's right there in the basis of our, our most basic symbology. I mean, look at the cadasis. You know, look, look at that staff. You've got a, a sine wave and a corresponding sine wave, and it's the basis of everything. I mean, that's the two dualistic points coming together. That's the reason when you take two piano notes next to each other and hit them both at the same time, you get a feeling of uncomfortableness right because you're taking two notes right next to each other that don't mathematically line up and you ring them together and you create irritability well that so and and the, so the, the the notes that don't line up that is the accidental occurring to the harmonic right correct exactly we're playing an accidental note if we play it over and over again, you'll eventually find harmony in it. Is that the same thing as what they classically classical musicians called like the devil's whatever? Definitely. Two notes next to each other, every horror movie, every Jaws movie, every... Let's go back a long time, right? Do, 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 do. Right? I always like, doom, 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 doom. Right? It creates a stir inside of you because even your brain can't make sense of that mathematical combination. Huh. And it's waiting, it's waiting for resolution. And I think that's kind of the, the building blocks of songwriting today. The best songs create resolution and distress at the right times of the song based on the right lyrics, right? Yeah. It's kind of like a good paper, present a problem, create a solution. You know, a good song should do that. Huh. Well, of course, of course. Yeah. I wrote my first new song in many years, actually, which is crazy for me to think about because I'm sort of the 30 songs a month kind of writer usually. But And I sent you the demo right after I laid it down within like one hour, like lightning bolted into my brain. So I'm, we'll have to talk off the air what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole, you know, you're making me think of the whole writing process of the four worlds of Kabbalah, right? We're constantly playing with ideas, manifestation, blueprints, formation. And then a lot of times we'll go back, you know, back up into different worlds until we're done with our piece. Same with like a good magical spell, right? You might, you may have to revisit a few times. Yeah. Doing a podcast interview, man. Talk to you later. Sorry, that's a roommate banging on my door. <laughs> I need a do not disturb sign. Right? And on air, right? Yeah. Live? Yeah. Anyway, 
Sorry for yelling, guys. I, I apologize. Uh, to quote Rodney Dangerfield, we get no respect. No respect at all. Yeah. But so this really ties back this is to come full circle now and swallow our tail. This goes back to the vowels of the Hebrew language and the intonation. The idea of that single point when we're vibrating a divine name is it's about not so much saying the word quote unquote right. It's about having where our focus and the vibration and the concentration, the will and the imagination all subsumed into that single point. So if you're focused on that point, who cares how you, which, which decade pronunciation of a word you're saying? Because language changes all the fucking time. Well, it goes back to the will, right? It goes back to the individual doing this over and over again in a repetitive uh, fashion. Uh, in my own experience, I found that I've been kind of changing the vowels, not because of my own liking, just it's kind of happening. The more I do it, the more the vowels kind of take on their own their own their own way, so to speak. I mean, before you know it, if you do it enough, you're repeating these names often enough that they just kind of come out of your mouth. And before you know it, you're almost being guided or coached in a way. There's some inner intuition happening. Hmm. You know, I've noticed it in my own work that the way that I use the vowels change as I've moved, you know, in my, you know, in my progress. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. I mean, one of the things I always noticed, uh, you know, as one of the, uh, as I went through Temple Tehuti and then I was overseeing it for so long, you could see the evolution. It was a thrill to witness the evolution of students' vibratory techniques and skill going from neophyte up through philosophists because it would change so much. And that was the best way I think you can learn true vibratory technique. It's by being in around a group of people and not having anyone say, this is the right way, this is the best way but rather just seeing such a wide variety. And when you're doing group ritual work in classes, you know, you, everyone's doing so many different rituals, one, one after the other, and then all together, you get, I mean, obviously when you're vibrating with someone, you, it's more important to harmonize than to do your own thing um, or unite, not necessarily harmonize, but unite, um, that you end up really getting to develop such a wide range of knowledge. It's almost like you go through the whole gamut of experience because you see other how other people vibrate you see how their vibrations change and then you start to understand how vibration changes within a single ritual itself and even within the range of intentions and focus within that performance does that make sense it makes total sense that's that's kind of what i'm alluding to is that it, it changes without you even realizing it and yeah. i think you know to, to help others out there i would I think the biggest thing to get over is volume. I mean, I mean, I remember people when are I first so scared. started. People are yeah, so scared, scared to be yourself. loud. You're scared of someone listening. You're scared of whatever. But the minute you let go of that, you'll you'll hit a certain volume to where your body will actually resonate. Damn that frequency. That's the secret, baby. That's the thing people don't seem to get. 
Yeah. yeah you've, you've got to push it. And then once, yeah, like, you know, uh, the first time, like I was doing Don Craig's book and I was trying to like self-initiate myself in the five equals six, like, cause that's where this, that's how quickly he does it in his book. Like within like six months, you're ready for adepthood. And I tried to do that. And uh, I have a diary entry about that fucking midsummer catastrophe. Jesus Christ. If I've ever been attacked by a spirit, it was that night. Um, and, uh, I'll have to read it to you sometime. And, uh, and I thought I was doing the rituals well. Like I started, I did the LBRP back when I hated Jesus. I didn't want anything to do with archangels. Fuck God. Fuck our Lord. You know, there was a pentagram in it, which confused me. I'm like, what's going on here? Let's give it a try. And then when I would started doing it every day, as I was instructed, actually, I started doing it out of Regardi's Tree of Life before I actually got Don Craig's book, which Don Craig's book flushed it, flushed it out a bit. But Regardi's Tree of Life gives you the most bare bones example. Like, though God help you if that's the, how you think it should be done. Touch your forehead, say ate. I'm, I want to say something about the the fucking Hebrew word ata. By the way, before we're done, so remind me if I forget. Because uh, there's a gender issue there, believe it or not. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know, I know. And most people don't realize that because they don't fucking learn Hebrew. So, um, I think that's called an explanabrag. So, um, when I first was initiating the Golden Dawn and got to go to my first class, and uh, Fr- Frater, Frater R was my teacher, and he went up to the altar, you know, we did our relaxation meditation. He went up to the altar rose up, visualized, did that, did the pre, pre-ritual med- focus, pulled down the light, and when he let out that first ata, the room shook, my being shook, and I let out what you, I could only describe as like a nervous laugh. You know, like that when you're young, sometimes you laugh in a way that's not actually good. I remember I was in a Taekwondo class once, and I saw this extremely overweight kid trying to do his basic yellow boat form, and it was so bad and he was so incapable of even like extending his arms and limbs in any functional way but like clearly you know it's not that I was you know I wasn't looking at him negatively it's just it was so hysterical in in its absurdity that I let out a laugh which of course everyone in the test testing room heard and I was instantly mortified just mortified right because you know but every you could tell everyone was feeling it and I didn't mean to it just was like <laughs> ah like that and I was like oh shit I did the same thing when he did that first vibration of Ata for the LBRP at Temple Tehuti in 1996 and uh, I and he ignored me because you know of course they don't know what to expect when you initiate a new person let alone a fucking 15 year old into a magical order you really don't know what to expect and uh I just, but I was just blown away. I was just like, and all I thought as he went through the rest of the LBRP was, this is how it's done. You know, this is how it's done. Holy shit, man. I thought I was doing it and I kept doing the rituals because they actually did something. Unlike everything I had tried to do from the Wiccan and Druidic books I had read, there was no juice in it. There was no mojo or vibe really that I felt, um, and probably again because I didn't have any teachers. If I had probably had a physical teacher and or actually learned from someone like Starhawk or personally from Scott Cunningham, I'm sure I would have learned these 
mouth-to-ear secrets, you know what I mean? But when I first saw sure. that LBRP vibrated and how vibration is actually... Like, there's a reason we don't call it chanting. That's what I'm saying. And yeah. it just... It was like, oh my God. Yeah. Game over. I'm in. I'm in it. I'm in. All the way. And now, a word from our sponsors. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or six dollars a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. No, me too. Me Volume. Too. Volume is crucial. And like volume is also the secret to accessing the great voice, which is the most is the inner order techniques of vibration, which I won't talk about because you're actually doing the work and going that way and it's better to be surprised. No, I appreciate that. Yeah. I do talk about on the live streams, I did three hours of, of live stream Q and A and, and and ranting and raving, um, which was actually it was quite good um to connect with people. But there, I, you know, I was unleashing a few little secrets that I could see were helping pull people pull, this, pull their understanding of the system together in a way that you actually just can't get from the books. And I think that's mainly due to a lack of the mouth-to-ear stuff. But the mouth-to-ear stuff is mainly valuable because it helps you know what to focus on and what not to focus on. What are the pieces of the alchemical puzzle and what are just some cool things to learn, like... <laughs> like uh like what's it called uh god what's that what's the thing geomancy geomancy's nifty but i i've only met two adepts in my life that got really into it well it's the basis of everything right geomancy Ge- geomancy yeah. is, a, is a divination system that involves making taking a marker or a pen and making random strikes on a piece of paper Sure, but I mean the basics of geomancy and the and the symbolisms and the astrological connections. They're the basis of a lot of systems. When you look at most tarot cards, you see geomancy just sitting there, you know, not really talked about quite a bit. I think that's one of the reasons we're less less uh, inspired by it is because it's based on you know Eastern Jyotish astrology. But isn't that the glorious astrology, right? The whole Islamic, oh yes, astrology. That's that's we, we in all... my book. That's one of the most, you know deepest stuff you can find versus most of the New Age uh, side rail stuff. Oh, you think so? I well, think so. I th- yeah, clearly, if we all just pr- if we really get to the final point of the Western mysteries, we'll really realize that we're at the beginning of what it truly means to enter the Eastern mysteries. I'm joking, man. Like, I, I just don't think that the Eastern well, system like I have, I have has anything to offer that the Western system doesn't already have. I mean, I have buddies that have sworn, you know, devotees to Krishna and Hindu, and the lessons that they're learning are so similar. I mean, for example, my buddy Kojin uh, sent me a video of one of his initiations, and they walk through each temple, and each temple has a tessellated floor of black and white. You know, and it's just so funny how you see these Masonic and golden attributes all throughout all of these types of things. Hmm. 
Interesting. I mean, basically, just like Greek culture, they would walk the initiate from town to town, right? Well, yeah. Do, do the grand walk. That's the Eleusinian mysteries. Exactly. And the same goes in Tibet. They did the same thing. The initiate walks a path all the way up the mountain through various temples. High as fuck. High as fuck. Yeah, that's the thing we've redacted from history is the kaikion and all the other psychedelic beverages they would consume as initiates. That's that's kind of the funny thing that, like, for me, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a super, uh, you know, into the whole psychedelics. I mean, when I was younger, we played around and whatnot. But what's funny is that the pinnacle of all this stuff, right, from the acacia leaves, from the, of masonry, you know, to the, the, the drugs of Buddhism, I mean, we realize that our ancestors were using these tools to reach the divine, uh, whether anyone wants to believe it or wants to give credit to it or not. Yeah. I mean, that's the reality. Altered state consciousness is the basis of all this. When I was uh, up at Soma Institute before I came down here to Isis Oasis, I was with Chris Bennett, who just has opened his Soma Institute, which is like a uh, psychedelic ret- friendly retreat center, right? With little individual cabins at like 70 bucks a night. There's a huge teepee that can hold 60 people, outdoor fire fueled hot tub, sauna, the whole shebang up up in the forest like you know deers and bears will walk by and you hopefully they don't you know take a disliking to you um and like there's no booze allowed it's just psychedelics or weed only and they have peruvian cactuses because peyote is legal in canada along with most other psychedelic stuff so you can just actually do public retreats there with those mysteries and those medicines and the thing, one thing he said to me after we were doing the work we were doing, and we were going through the whole gamut of everything, including from mushrooms to leading into, we did a three night thing from starting with mushrooms, going into the second night DMT, and then the third night five uh, meo DMT, because he has two Sin- Sonora Desert Toads there. Though we of course did the pure synthesized stuff. Oh, I'm sure Spotify is going to love this interview. Um, yeah. Um, and, uh, what was I saying? The, oh shit, I lost the point. I mean, but that's the basis of it all. I mean, you know, here's what he said. Here's what he said. He said, he said, he was asking me, he's like, so you really did the whole golden dawn thing. I was like, oh yeah. He's like, like everything. I'm like, yeah, you know, (laughs) I mean, yeah, definitely. I did the traditional everything. Um, I mean, there's a lot of new developed stuff and, and like, oh, if don't like, don't take, don't take it the wrong way. Like if anyone is aware of how much they don't know, I'm, I'm one of them. Cause like, you know, shit, I could spend the rest of my life just learning from people like Zalewski or Farrell or probably even Chick and people like Aaron Leach. Like yeah, there's so many like fucking Steven Skinner, man. Jesus. Yeah, come um, on. Like, you know, there's so many very like so many of these massive leaders and adepts have come to the fore with their specialties and their vast knowledge. Like there's so many avenues you can go. That's the thing, but once you've done the Golden Dawn system, that's when you realize you don't need any more books because you have enough techniques and avenues of exploration from Shemwork to the Tabula Bornorum to Anakian to you name it, Solomonic, Grimoires, Goethe, Tatwas, it's, it, it's endless, right? Solom- you know, uh, what's, you know, and you, know, you really have to pick and choose what you're meant to do with your life because you can't actually do it all. No way. No chance. So he was saying to me, 
you've done it all and uh but you never did psychedelics i'm like no he's like that's so crazy to me because he said to me it feels like if you doing the rituals or any ritual work without psychedelics is sort of like you know missing the main point and his new book here's a controversial thing he had he did it he did a little podcast with me back in, in the day where he announced his new book title following on the footsteps of his massively successful Lieber 420, which is 777 pages long. If you haven't bought Lieber 420, get it. Uh, yeah, it's a great book, great book. You've seen it, yeah. So, you know, and, and I, I run his Lieber420.com website. I keep trying to give it to him to take over, and he's like, no, you can keep running it. I'm like, okay, thanks. <laughs> it's just a page that gathers information so he can email people about how retreats work and stuff. And uh, he... Uh, he he really sort of sees these rituals as needing the psychedelics like to him to do all for him to for for him to do a 3 hour session of golden dawn advanced rituals with me without being on peyote or mushrooms or something or or at least seriously stoned to him seems a little empty and that's one thing where that's probably a point where he he and I theoretically diverge and i think but I do agree that to get the same kind of experience that you get from psychedelics without them in our in our ritual paths in magic, it does take a lot of fucking work, right? Am I wrong about that? Well, let's be honest. I mean, yeah, let's be really honest about this. I think really I think we, I, I mean, want I think if, people want to hear cards on the table sort of stuff. If, if you if okay, so our working on the sphere of sensation, right? is our ability to get to that state of mind without extracurricular, so to speak. That being said, you can take an outward approach or an inward approach, right? You can either use the drugs to take you to a place that's different than now. I think some people need it more than others. I think some people are more naturally psychic than others. They may need assistance for things. Uh, I've met people that are completely sober, and can swear on their connection with, uh, for example, the Holy Guardian Angel, which is another uh, path here, right? I mean, like, you know, in other adept practices, when you get to a certain point, the whole golden aim is to reach that connection between you and your Guardian Angel. And at that point, you'll get instruction further. Now, that's one way, but I think that there's serious credibility to Chris Bennett's work because anybody that researches enough on any of these traditions will see that yeah those those psychoactive drugs are pretty prevalent in every single initiation school uh from the oracles of you know the chaldean mysteries to the buddhist practices to the acacia leaves of masons everywhere you look it's there huh yeah well it is i mean uh i have with me uh his outer print book uh Sex, drugs, and violence. Sex, drugs, violence in the Bible, which is great because that's where he really gets into a lot of stuff. Uh, more so in in cannabis and the soma solution, but he looks at all the use of drugs in the Bible. And that the main realization I had was that when through all my years of graduate school at at universities and doctoral studies, I was never ever once even slightly made aware of the fact that we had in any way redacted drug use from our from not only religious but mainstream history it's hidden no professor ever once even hinted that we might be glossing over 
perhaps the most significant aspect of every element of human society. That's the problem with a strictly academic background. <laughs> that's, the, that's, the, that's the problem it's with like, uh, with post Victorian scholarship. Well, don't you love watching these excavations, right, where they they unbury some ritual object that you and I use regularly, and they're they must have used it for this. This oh, is why yeah. they used it. And we're going like, no, <laughs> that's not at all. What not that is. oh oh, that happens all the time to me, man. It's so painful. Oh my god, um, it happened recently actually when uh, someone was speculating on um, something to do with the uh, with I think some of the things Yates had written and some of his magical tools and stuff and they were speculating on well even on wikipedia i tried to go there's on there's a page on wikipedia that has the rose cross laman of the second order right Mm -hmm. and underneath it it's labeled um rose cross laman of the hermetic order of the golden dawn and i tried to go in and change that and i changed it to rose cross laman of the of the rosea rubeid oria crucis and the the there's the, the I didn't realize that Wikipedia has these gatekeepers, these like status imbued, power hungry, uh, you know, ideological freaks who are you know in this case these guys were people who just think they know what's right, or they're probably thelemites who are anti Golden Dawn and are trying to r- reduce the system to meaninglessness and r- r- eradicate its nuance, and. Uh, he, they changed it back. They're like, you're not allowed to change it. I'm like, but I've cited it. It's like a fact. I'm changing something that's not a fact to something that's a fact. No member of the Golden Dawn will ever be seen wearing a Rose Cross Laman. It's not possible. Because mm-hmm. if you're wearing a Rose Cross Laman, by definition, you are not in the Golden Dawn. You have graduated the Golden Dawn. You are in a different order entirely, and the only connection between the two is that one administrates the other, but there is no other ontological connection. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine if the books of esoteric knowledge on your shelf changed? The content was changed. <laughs> you go back to that book and you read it. That's the problem with with unstatic, or I'm sorry, static sources of information. I mean, Wikipedia could be changed tomorrow. And I think that today's students are really both uh, blessed with the amount of information they have, but burdened by the blinds that are put in place. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, I always love uh, Steve Carell's On the Office when he says, Wikipedia, Wikipedia is the best because anyone can say whatever they want about anything so you know you're getting the best possible information from everyone in the world <laughs> and that's that's the problem with the internet right you know that's, that's really <laughs> well i mean look at this pandemic we're going through no one knows what to believe at this point right well and everyone's got a conch and it's lord of the flies right so i never read lord of the flies media man is, is, you know social media gives everybody the conch right everyone's got the conch i do understand the, the idea of the conch jesus you know it's, it's like, it's, like it's, the it's talking stick a platform i mean you've got people that are literally from age three deciding that they're going to be a youtube channel you know podcaster and they already know that if they get ten thousand plus you know viewers they're going to monetize their channel it's a whole new generation yeah i mean they sort of they sort of sort of put me in my lemonade stands to shame well look at what it's done to guys like ea coating and stuff right i mean 
it's turned guys with a little bit of information into powerhouses of influence. I mean, even in my company of manufacturing, you know, we staff plenty of young people that are working on finding out who the influencers are. You know, like this podcast for you cre- creates influence, right? You get enough viewers to the podcast, all of a sudden you can monetize it. And it's it's kind of like the king that gets drunk in power. You can either utilize that to spread useful information about esoterics, or you can create a business platform, Yeah, which I think is too often what we see in our community. Exactly. Well, I did a three-hour live stream lecture on two different Instagram channels, and part of the purpose of that is to promote my works because, you know, God knows I'm in, in a tight spot trapped here in the States at a retreat center that closed down and doesn't host classes anymore so i was trying to promote my work even someone said how can we support you and i told them how i've got this harpocratesian mysteries uh meditation of harpocrates manuscript that i wrote in portal in 99 and it's free today on amazon please everyone go download it give it a review that's why i make it free and you know thousands of copies get downloaded when i give it free and all i'm hoping for is at least like 10 or 20 reviews though i've never managed to really get too many from free downloads but at least it's better than nothing and uh the purpose is to try and you know not only get your work out there and i love i love being able to make have free days that's the only privilege of really going exclusively with amazon is you get five free days every three months and that allows me to get my material out and and guidance out to people who especially in countries where they can't really afford where even 2.99 is a large amount of money right like yeah, totally. uh, uh, Thailand is $6 a day minimum wage. I don't know what the state of Brazil is, but I get a lot of sales in Brazil. And I know, I know, especially because my work's been translated into Spanish for, not Brazil, but for Spanish-speaking countries, a lot of them can't really afford a $20 download or a $10 download. But, you know, a $0.99 cent or a two ninety nine download, they can sort of swing. And to be able to give it free allows a ton of those people to access, especially my Spanish work, um, without losing money, and uh, and I think I think that's great. That's wh- that's why I do that. But yeah, no, I did a live stream so that you know to make a few bucks so I can afford fucking medicine for autoimmune diseases and stuff yeah, like and that. And there's something to be said about that too. I think I've read many times in the craft that you know the worst thing you can do is either overcharge or not charge at all. Right? Oh, I've never heard <laughs> that before. Oh, maybe I should listen to that more. Because there are, you know, there are practitioners that should be paid for what they do. I mean, but like, let's be honest, Elegant. We live in a we live in a time of twenty uh, year old life coaches giving me tarot readings, and not to say that any twenty year old can't be uh, learned in the mysteries, but it's given access to anybody with a voice. I mean, look at our damn president, for example. I mean. People speak loud enough and they say the right things, they get the support, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, when you have such small hands, clearly you have a giant cock. <laughs> <laughs> but let's be honest. I mean, this information should be available to any true student that's trying to learn it. I mean, 
it should be. It should be accessible to everyone. That is one of the reasons in the Golden Dawn International we we flyered books, even when store owners didn't really like it, because that was how people joined. That was the way in which people joined. And I still have mixed feelings about it to this day. But I, had it not been for flyering books, I would not have joined. And I could not imagine that. But they kept falling out of every book I fucking bought at the occult bookstore in Vancouver. And they were everywhere I went. And I was just like, okay, I got to I gotta check this out. And when I went in and saw how amazing the people were there, and like I was there under very honored Frater Ka, and he's now still teaching to this day under different order titles because they change their names every once in a while, which I think is a great ethos. They're like, you know, people get attached to their names and it brings up all this ego and I am this sort of mentality. We change our names regularly to end different periods of egregores. And that is our ethos. And I'm like, that's brilliant. So he's currently still teaching under the name. He's now known as Nineveh Shadrach, which is and more power to him. I, I love him. You know, I, I just knew him as Car or Mimo. Um, but he he was an amazing adept to come in under. He's the one who gave me the motto of Frater RC. Like he scribed my name. He actually even uh, you know lenited it properly into Latin as Rumpens Catene, broken of chains. Um, obviously, I grew out of that motto going into five equals six. But to this day, that was such a powerful experience. I know some orders allow you to choose your outer order motto, and that's fine. More, you know, it's, 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 I'm curious about that, actually, uh, Fred R.C. I mean, for example, I was given my name. Um, can you shed any light to how the premonstrators and officers create that name in the instances where they provide a name? I can tell you exactly how it's done. So if you, go, if, if you have an order that gives you the outer... The idea, first of all, let's talk about why someone would give you an outer order motto as opposed to letting you choose it now i'm i'm long-term personal friends with frater yeshi even before he and i knew we were each the head of different golden dawn groups um and he has a negotiation sort of with his new neophytes and they they look for a name together and discuss it and he'll help them rethink it if he thinks it doesn't fit and he does it under the context of sort of what is your five-year plan isn't that interesting like where That's do you want really where do you want yeah. to be five years from now? Because they consider their system for in the, his in his order of the uh, Theban, te- Theban Temple in, in Victoria BC, which and they have a charter from I believe Chick actually. So they have a bunch of other temples and stuff. And let's not get into the details of some of that stuff because you know. Anyway, he's amazing, and I highly recommend anyone to, to check out and join his order, though they often dissuade people. They, they spend a lot of time dissuading people from joining their order, which I think is, uh, is absolutely the mark of a good group. <laughs> but the idea of where do you want to be in five years, and it takes five to eight years to get through his version of the system, which is an ultra-traditional system. Um, like, yeah, they reject all of Yeats's additions and such. Um, and I think it's great. I think we should have orders that are pure OGD, orders that are Stella Matutina or Alpha and Omega based. I think that's a very healthy thing for us to have different versions. I would love to know more about the Sedalitas uh, group, you know, over in Europe that's offering traditional, you know, GD training. I'd love to know more about them and how they do things. I really wish that different GD orders could actually all perform and witness together each other's zero zero initiations and such things and gain more dialogue 
build some more bridges and and grow together rather than so disparately yeah i think that's always been a goal i mean that's always been the even in the query raw lineage they always were dialing in their rituals rewriting rechanging and i think that's kind of the basis of all traditions in fact the masonic tradition has been rewritten so many times that nobody really knows really you know why we use the same bread pan we used to cook the same bread hmm it's just what was passed to us yeah we use what's given to us right and we yeah. grow from there yeah so so to answer your question um the orders that have you so i love the idea of being given by your higher friend your motto so you've never heard it before it's one of the most exciting experiences i could imagine when you go in for your physical initiation whether you've done an astral one before and you know if you've done an astral one before and been given your motto i think it's not as powerful i loved being on the throne of the hierophant or even in, in any of the officer positions because I, I did them all in some of them many many times and that was a true mitzvah in my life honestly i i wouldn't i mean if i could go back and do it all again i i would i would drink it up even deeper like it was such a blessing for me but to see that candidate given this magical name i think was just such a powerful thing to witness and for many people it was a powerful transformative experience some people said it was just dead on and it shook them to their core it tran just hearing their new their motto given to them by this man on the third woman on the throne of the higher fan i love that it's a man or a woman god bless uh god bless uh moina moina and mcgregor mathers for that um to, some of them said it, that just hearing that motto given to them transform them like radically and fundamentally transform them like they had basically it caused them to have a full spiritual initiation concurrent with that physical initiation experience and that's amazing isn't it can you imagine being that lucky i mean you you actually agree you got to sort of experience that didn't you like you were given your motto in the initiation itself yeah, and and your frat or C, so you... and again, I mean, not to, not not to not to go back full circle, but I mean, imagine being, you know, like you, you're uh, an adept at the Golden Dawn tradition. Imagine being an adept at the Golden Dawn tradition, and then going to a new temple, and then having to start completely fresh, given a new name. Well, that doesn't make sense to me. It was actually really powerful to me. Well, that it, just, it doesn't make sense to me if to go through two different Golden Dawn orders. I know a lot of people do it, but to me, no, I mean, I mean from Masonic to oh, Masonic to Golden Dawn. So you already feel like you know some things. You already feel like you you have some bit of light. You feel accomplished. You've been given aprons. You've been given titles. And then here I go to Austin and submit to nothing, right? I'm back to, back to nothing, back to Negro, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that is power. I mean, I think, yeah, and I think it's a little bit different when you're doing a new system because the new system is basically a different palette of flavors or colors. It is. It is. But, for example, in York Rite Masonry, um, you have your name. Your name's never taken from you. But when you get to the York Rite, uh, degrees, you actually translate your name to a symbol. And this goes oh, back that's to the... fucking cool. Dude, if ever there was a reason to become a Freemason, people, I think we've heard it. Well, for example, when you go into the old cathedral buildings in Europe, you don't see names, but you see 
symbols yeah. on every block. And isn't, those blocks, is, those are their names. Isn't those that sort of that, reminiscent of straight-up chaos magic? In a way. I mean, but it's more formal. I mean, Let's call the it idea proto- was that... Think, think of, like, early manufacturing in QC, right? Like, it comes across your station, you're going to do with what you're going to do with it, and then you're going to sign off. Then someone above you is going to come... Uh, a fellow craft mason is going to check your work with the tools. Oh, I don't know anything about that. If it's not good, it gets sent back. What's QC? Kind of like QC, quality assurance and manufacturing. Oh, okay. That whole basis came from the degrees of masonry. You have different set of chiefs that are in charge of certain parts of the building, and they're constantly being reviewed by the people above you. Just like Golden Dawn, you have a mentor that's working with you the whole time, and that same mentor sometimes is passing grades as you are but huh. always one step ahead of you yeah 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 okay so so when they when they create the name how does that how does that happen yeah okay in the instances where they where they give you a name yeah so um sometimes people have the radically opposite experience and they they feel let down and they say oh um yeah, I don't really get that name. My mom sort of felt always that way when uh, you know she joined. She felt that the name was never totally her. And to be honest, there's a case, there's a downside to having the hierophant choose uh, you know uh, uh, ch- you know channel or get the name. Um, which the downside is sometimes you're going to get a lazy a lazy motherfucker. And they're just going to pull out a Latin dictionary and do a little bibliomancy and grab some words. But I know in my order I had to submit a natal chart, so I'm, I'm hoping that there's some correlation maybe between the natal, natal chart and... Oh, you know, one of our selling points was that we, when you joined, we also gave you your natal chart as long, along with an interpretation. Interesting. So in my order I had to submit one, and for some reason I had a sneaking suspicion that that's how my name was created. Well... Yeah, well, there's uh, there's second order techniques that we use based on people's natal charts to create certain uh, symbols and words based on the rose cross laman to uh, connect with a person's higher self. And gotcha. I, and I'm not going to get into that too much, um, just because you know it's it's not a big deal. Um, <laughs> but the techniques that like we used. I mean, essentially what you're doing is, you know, for lack of a better word, trying to, you're tapping into the Akashic Records and you're basically trying to actually directly contact that person's holy guardian angel and ask them what the name for their outer order, their experience of the lesser circulation should be. Interesting. That actually makes sense to me. And uh, that that would be done in any number of ways from... Uh, creating a sigil based on their earthly name and then scrying that sigil. And by scrying, I don't mean regular scrying. I mean full-on rising in the plains, crossing the abyss, entering the supernal landscape and doing the adept techniques that allow us to contact that holiest of holies, right? Because ultimately in, in the state, when you're in touch and in full that in that fully elevated state of full communion with your higher self, you're in touch with all higher selves. That was something that became radically clear to me uh, in, in my 5-MEO and uh, DMT experiences, actually. I was like, holy shit, this is not something that's just astral and imaginary. There is a physical side to this that 
we can access with these uh <laughs> these fucking plant chemicals it's uh pretty pretty out of this world honestly so um yeah that was that would be what i did back then as i would you know use the person's name and then rise in the plains rising in the plains is a uniquely golden dawn technique and it there's a very specific way in which we do that with specific names grade signs passwords but also you know psychosomatic techniques of conscious consciousness elevation um that are very effective and they're effective because you develop them as you go through the grades over those seven initiations and or five to ten years however long it takes you you know two three months in crowley's crowley's time right yeah yeah <laughs> of course he just he just couldn't really pass that final philosophy's exam god knows why well, doing the work, right? You do the work. Yeah, plus, I, and I don't really mean that. I'm just sort of taking the piss out of Crowley because I was praising him earlier on for a few things, but, you know, that's that's why he exists. He exists to be the, the, uh, the what's the word? The, the the foil and inspiration to all of us. Yeah. Well, I think in, in our conversations, it's kind of like, why create, recreate the wheel, right? I mean, the Golden Dawn system works, so why change it? Why... I think there's a lot of folks that come into esoterics that just want to change it. Sure. Build something new. Well, that way but, you but can... But the reality is it's all there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had people say to me, like, I was... They've asked me, um, I was pathworking the star card, but then I was dragged down by the kraken in the waters, and the demon kraken pulled me into the waves. What do you think that means? And I was like, there's no kraken on the star card to like oh but there is in mine and i'm like well <laughs> brother you're 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 doing your own thing what you're talking about no longer has anything to do with what i'm talking about you've you've exited the system right it's like you know i'm operating on linux and you're trying to tell me how great windows 95 is yeah no but there's there's look there's something there's something to be said here right i mean folks all across the world have done these inner meditations and have seen the same things on the same paths. Yeah. So it's kind of funny to create some concrete path based on something metaphysical. But the reality is, is that those of us that have done path working come across the same things. And it's the only way that we can create a standard throughout all this, right? I mean, Enlightenment and insanity is a fine line, right? I think that there's a reason why you know, surgeons, doctors, artists, poets, everyone has flocked to this current because it is deeper. It is there's much more to it, and it seems that the most intelligent people tend to flock to it. It's just really interesting to me. It is. Hey, are you up for a little a little adventurous uh, challenge? Sure. Okay. Sure, why not? Have you ever done a solo podcast? Done a what? I'm sorry. A solo podcast type thing. I haven't yet, but you know, yeah. I've done some radio shows and stuff. Okay, but you know, you're a musician, so you certainly know how to solo, especially if you're a drummer. Yeah, totally. Right. So here's the challenge. I'm going to take 120 seconds and run to the run to the restroom, and you're going to solo for a minute on uh, my patio furniture <laughs> just you no, you just just keep talking and you're talking as if it's a solo podcast for 120 seconds 
Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Why I would, not? Why? I would say 60 seconds, but I'm going to wash my hands. So. <laughs> All right, Fratter. This is your challenge. People are people are listening. The whole world's watching or with their ears. And go. All right. Well, thank you for that uh, digression. Um, you know, it's it's a pleasure. Um, you know, when I when I met Eloquin, Fratter RC, uh, we met at PantheaCon. We were up at the Suites. You know, and we met within about maybe thirty seconds of coming to the hotel room, and we immediately, you know, noticed each other's auras and started talking. And it wasn't, you know, too quickly realized that we were both Golden Dawn members, that we both are actually connected to the same temples, which is kind of ironic. But it was really interesting to me to meet more Golden Dawn students. Um, again, I come from a, a Masonic background into Martinism and Rosicrucianism and finally Golden Dawn. Uh, but I found so many similarities between them all. Um, you know, masonry in some ways compared to the, you know, the awe moments of a Golden Dawn ritual aren't quite the same as masonry. But masonry, it's all there. It's just so hidden. Um, I run the education department of the Masonic Lodge. I try to do the best I can to bring esoteric knowledge into the Masonic lodges. And what I found is that the guys that are, you know, 25, 30 and younger are just starving for this stuff. And, you know, at times I felt like I didn't want to do education for Masons, but I realized there's so much disinformation out there that I realized that it was time to start, you know, shedding light on all that. I mean, masonry on its surface is just so kind of square, <laughs> so to speak. But in its inner workings, it's as deep as the Golden Dawn rituals. It's as deep as the Masonic rituals. Uh, there's layers of Kabbalah all over the temple. Um, for example, you know, in, in all traditions, you take a candidate and you bring them to the altar. You have them swear an oath. You, you pray and invocate on God, and then you walk them through the corners of the lodge. The corners of the lodge are cardinal points. They're elemental spots. Masons don't actually uh, consecrate, but they do in a way. They teach the candidate the way to be consecrated as an individual. Unfortunately, I think a lot of the esoteric teachings just get thrown out the window. I think that a lot of Masons leave, you know, third degree or even first degree, like Frater R.C., and don't think there's anything there. And, you know, for those that want to seek, they'll find. Um, and it's all there. It's just, I find it would be harder to find all that stuff if you were just going through as a Mason. Uh, there's so much U.S. history and world history behind Masons that kind of bogs the real path of what we're trying to do. Um, you know, if I could take Masonry and condense it down to a lesson, I would basically say that, you know, I think it was Paracelsus that, that said that evil spirit trapped in matter. And we're all sort of stuck in this geometric cube, so to speak. Um, and I know that alludes to a lot of Saturn stuff, and I won't go there in the Kaaba and the Islams. But the reality is, is that whether or not you look at it as an evil thing, when you unfold a cube, you create a cross. And at the center of that cross is the treasure. And I think that a lot of people who do esoterics or masonry are going to skip this lesson. They're going to go right past into Master Mason 
and they're they're going to forget the whole lesson that's right there in front of their eyes, which is that cube unfolding. Um, it gets touched in a little bit in the Scottish Rite degrees, in the uh, I believe it's the 18th degree, the Rose Croy degree. It's where you really start to see the tesseract uh, and turning into a cube, and the cube unfolds into that cross. It's so basic yet so profound that those that actually um, are lucky enough to uncover the symbolism will start to realize the real symbology behind the cross. Um, but again, you know, a lot of folks aren't willing to dig deep enough to find these truths um, because the more you dig, the more uncomfortable stuff you'll find. Um, my suggestion to any esoteric students is to let every idea, every profound statement given to you hit the core of your being. Because if not, you're not letting anything hit. Um, spirituality is about taking ideas, taking them to the core and ascending. And I think that unless we take these teachings and really digest them, we're never really going to understand them. And I think that a lot of folks reach a certain point, whether it's confusion, they, they start up the mountain and they get confused and they just want to run back down and create their own order, or they want to see or they see something that's uncomfortable and they just run thinking that you know masonry and esoterics are evil uh, but i think those that are willing to put the persistence and, and the patience into it will quickly find that there's just so many treasures in both you know Kabbalistic uh, thought and ritual work it's just there it, there's just so much otherwise cats like me and rc and you know, my, my buddies in Austin wouldn't have been doing this for so long. I mean, we're, we're literally carrying on this baton that's been passed to us. Um, and for our own being, I mean, none of us are making money off of this. We're all doing it for our own internal pleasures. And if the internal pleasures weren't worth it, why would we be doing it, right? No one's making money off of it. I just I just oh. clicked the button to find out how much money I made from ebook sales during my three hour live stream lectures. I thought you were segueing into Pink Floyd money right there. No, no <laughs> I, I hit the button that tells me my book report of sales on a minute by minute basis. So, so I EMS clearly, clearly, man, someone's making money off this. I made a whopping eight seventy five for for only three hours of nonstop talking. I mean, let's, let's that's be. almost three dollars an hour man that's almost three dollars an hour that's way more than they make in some asian countries yeah it's true that's true no uh yep. it's, uh, i think that's uh, i heard you i came back and i heard what you said and i was like oh my god this would be this is too funny i need i need here no one's making money off this ka-ching <laughs> so, that's pretty pretty, pretty well there's your eight dollars apropos there's, there's your lunch for, for tomorrow yeah no, actually, uh, <laughs> most of that I think was made before was from was from while I was sleeping, and because uh, on, on the live stream I was promoting the ebook that is free, so it's free today. Most well, people, let's it, be honest. I mean, these this day and age, it's easier to throw money at something than to actually do it, right? I mean, yeah. there's a lot of cats that would rather throw thirty bucks at a new book than to actually sit in their room and do vanishing rituals until they get it. Folks, if you buy my books, you don't need to do the rituals anymore. The books will do it for you. Trust me. <laughs> or to quote the founder of of the the ignominious igno, ignominious founder of of our order, 
he would always say, you need this book. Fratter, fratter, <laughs> you need this book. There's a couple people out there, I'm sure, who are going to be in stitches because I, I do I do his voice so well that at one point I went into the Temple of Isis, Mighty Mother in L.A., picked up the microphone that was tied into the little amp, and I was in the in the yeah. in the the temple, and it was huge, right? You know, and I knew there was just a few adepts in the other room. I was probably in Portal or Philosophers at the time, and I just picked the mic. I was like. Fratters and sores of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn assemble in the Hall of the Neophyte, and these adepts came rushing into the room. They're like, "Where he's here? He's here? Where is he? What? What?" Because he didn't. He lived in Seattle, and they they all they saw me with the microphone, like smiling. They're like, the look of terror and shock on their face was priceless because they all thought it was it was it was uh, him. <laughs> and uh, I actually used that skill one other time in my life to my shame. So after the schism between Canada and America, I flew out to Montreal to hang out with Martin. And, uh, you know, he had started, he was now running Zalewski's group after he got Samuel kicked out. Um, and I know a lot about, way more about that than I wish I did. But I was hanging out with him and we got drunk on Stella Artois one night. And we decided to crank call Temple of Isis in L.A., And I so I called Turkey him up, style. and like you know he he had been expelled when he went to Montreal to create his own temple. He he was like they're like no you require we require two adepts to create a temple otherwise you get all egotistical and shit and fucking whatever. And he's like well too bad I'm good enough to do it and he ran off and did and got expelled. And uh, but you know after the schism happened and I wasn't expelled or creator I didn't resign or anything there was just a schism and then shit fell apart. That's how it went down at Temple Tehuti and and all of Canada. And so I flew it there, and we, we prank called them, and I they pick up the phone. I'm like, Fratter, how's it going? And the person responded, oh, oh, it's you. Um, I, things are okay, Fratter. How, for, how are you? I'm like, Fratter, you're, you're backsliding on the path. I can feel it. And he's like, I am. Oh, I'm so, you know what, Fratter? I'm so sorry. Um, I, I've, I, I've been doing better. I'm, I'm working really hard, Fratter. Is the vault up? And he's like, yes, yes, we assembled it as you asked. And I'm like getting all this information, right? <laughs> From actually being able to imitate the founder's voice. It was pretty hysterical. I did feel guilty about it afterwards, though me and Martin had a pretty good laugh at the time. We like He was falling off his chair. Oh, my God. That might be one of the most shameful things I've done in my life, but so be it. Sounds fun. Why not? I can confess this to you here, right, in confidence. It's not like anyone's listening. I hear you judging me. <laughs> how, are you, how are you doing? How's the family? Oh, we're good, man. We're just hanging in there, you know, with the whole quarantine fun. Quarantina con, quarantine con. It is crazy. It is crazy. It's very strange to be all of a sudden not able to work doing what I do, and also not being able to go home or anywhere. You can't go anywhere. We're all just stuck. Yeah, it's weird, man. I mean, you know, I, I do sales for a musical, you know, instrument assessment. So, sir, start, say that again. 
I think people would be interested to know about your professional music world. So I do sales for an accessory company uh, that manufactures gig bags for guitars, cables for uh, instruments under the brand Pig Hog, uh, Reunion Blues, and a bunch of other different uh, brands. And, you know, being in the music industry, we're the pulse of everything. And I, I can say that in the last two months, I mean, everything's just kind of turned off. It's been really weird. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, people are still making home. But uh, people aren't going out and gigging, and that's really where I make my livelihood. So I'm hoping that it'll eventually kick back in. Yeah, yeah I, in, in March I had two gigs booked, one at the Petrified Forest, one at Harbin uh, Hot Springs, and that was like $1,000 just gone, like gone. And, you know, shit, you know, and there's nothing else, you know. But I used to, I was teaching uh, three hours of classes here every week, and now that's over. The conference, the Hermetic Conference, we had booked here for the weekend of the 22nd of November with all the reputable people who had signed on to come do that. Like, that's just canceled permanently. And this place, you know, uh, you know, they got $20,000 bill just for basic upkeep here a month. And, uh, you know, taking out loans, like, definitely in danger of bankruptcy. You know, people are, uh, people are, can't even get food from the food banks it's a uh, rough times man and then you know we're not even hearing that much about the homeless people and the people who uh, have nothing and no one true true i mean locally here in sonoma county uh, that's one of our masonic things we we load food every month so i do know that the empire food bank is is pretty well stocked nice. they're giving a lot of food away to you know the folks that are hurting right now you got any like gluten-free bread or or prime rib yeah, we got you. You got me. You I got, got you. You got you got some gray poupon. Um, you you would actually be very surprised <laughs> how well most homeless people eat in the metropolitan areas. <clears throat> wow! Because all of the local you know, food maxes and supermarts are all donating. Uh, when I used to work at the soup kitchen uh, locally, I was always surprised by how much food they had. It's amazing. Um, if you work the vegetable station or salad station, you can always tell by how long someone's been homeless for, because the OG homeless people will always eat lots of vegetables. Oh wow! Whereas the, you know, the new homeless people just come in and eat the protein and whatnot. Interesting. It's a trip, man. I mean, people talk about helping the homeless and doing this, but that's one thing I have to give to the local, you know, churches and whatnot. I mean, they, they're doing it regardless, and they've been doing it. Um, you know, again, people talk about helping, but these organizations are, are doing it every day. Yeah, a friend of mine here, a former Walder school teacher from Israel, heard uh, that I wasn't able to get my medications and stuff like that, given the new economy, and uh, called her rabbi. <laughs> I haven't heard back from her, but I was like, yeah, hey, if you want to call your rabbi, that's that's fine with me, you know. I, I would actually love to talk to your rabbi about all kinds of things that have nothing to do with <laughs> getting my medication, <laughs> you know. I'll be like, so tell me about the word hesed. You know, that, that's a funny point, though, right? Like, here we study the Hebrew alphabet and Golden Dawn and different mystical systems, but like this was a craft that was only given to select 
male initiates 35 and up that were deemed worthy and here we are today you can google this stuff and just find it anywhere it's just it's just interesting to see how you know, hey, the world of information has opened everything up. Yeah, I mean, all you need to be a Kabbalist now is a little bit of red string. And the, uh, what is it, the Kabbalah Center in L.A.? Yeah, the Kabbalah Center. Hey, Madonna. I love, to, I love to take the piss out of them, man, but at the same time, if it wasn't for Madonna's money, Rav Berg would never have translated the entire fucking Zohar. I mean, Madonna even gave an entire copy of the whole Zohar hardcover to Britney Spears as a wedding gift so that she could put it above her door and their belief is that just owning the books nice nice sales trick hey just yeah. owning the books will protect you from evil so Britney Spears put it on a shelf above her front door <laughs> but isn't is, that funny but isn't they wouldn't have been translated of? without that money and they were translated from the fucking Aramaic and into Hebrew and English interlinearly which is you know the English translations are very populist and clunky and i know that because i can fucking read aramaic but it's better than nothing it's way better than nothing because it means you can look at the aramaic then look at the new english translation and then you can actually look at meanings in between and it's in that liminal space of understanding the language that you really start to tease out what the different meanings are and it's always not about discovering the meaning it's about looking at the meanings yeah, I mean, you also speak to the elephant in the room, which is kind of funny, that when you study most famous occultist uh, uh, practitioners, they typically have a uh, a funding source, <laughs> right? Yeah. They always meet a young gal that comes from royal lineage or has money that has fascination in the arts. Cool. It always tends to front the career, almost like a musician, right? It's Crowley like, always did that. Um uh, Mathers, I mean, Mathers expelled Horniman just because she wouldn't give him money anymore. I mean, that's why the 1900 schism between the Golden Dawn happened was because Mathers was pissed off that he couldn't freeload off this woman's wealth. And I think it's worth speaking to that, right? I mean, I think a lot of people get into this thinking, well, how the hell did, uh, you know, so-and-so die poor? How did so-and-so die so unhealthy? If they were such a practitioner of magic, well, yeah, the, the, I was I was listening to both of Lon Milo Duquette's uh, uh, episodes. There's two interviews or two one hour episodes on Gaia.com where he's interviewed, and basically they're documentaries about Crowley, but really they're about Lon. And you know, they really taught, looked at the fact that he died addicted to heroin. Like heroin got the better of him, and he died poverty stricken on heroin. And uh, people say, yeah, well, how could he have been the master of masters if, and then fallen victim to that? And sure, maybe he had asthma or bronchitis or whatever, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you're, of course you're going to get asthma and bronchitis if you do fuckloads of cocaine and heroin your whole life. Sure, and, sure. You know, and uh, I don't know. I have mixed feelings and mixed ideas. I, I'd, love to, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, actually. I mean... I think that what I'm what I'm touching on is the difference between why we come into hermeticism and what we actually get out of it. I think that when we first come into it, um, we come into it from a, a magician perspective. I mean, for example, let's say you just joined a Golden Dawn. You're you have privileged information. You uh, 
you have new abilities that you're honing in on. And I think that the tendency to create your persona as a magician tends to shadow the real theurgy that we're really trying to do, right? I mean, at the core of all of these teachings is a bettering yourself, creating a more divine self, meeting the divine with the higher self. And I think that when we tend to take that ego of a magician and sell it in a way, it tends to backfire. Uh, look at uh, Blavatsky, right? I mean, she ended, oh, yeah. ended her career doing seances, fake seances. Um, well, she, she fell into disrepute because she was doing stuff that she said was legitimate that wasn't. Like, she had that house in India, and there was a little, like, a dumbwaiter door, and you would put a letter in it to one of the secret masters, and the letter would be answered with another letter within, like, an hour or something. And then some of her servants let it slip that she was upstairs forging these letters, writing and let, them. Let, that, that's a good point to talk about. I so mean, secret she didn't end. She didn't end as a charlatan. She was intermixing charlatanism, charlatanry with with sincerity the whole time. And there you go. When you water down the will, right? When you water down the point. Um, you, you don't get focused answers and you don't get a, you know, a point that meets the end. And I think you see this a lot with Crowley or Crowley, I'm sorry. And oh, no, I, I always say Crowley and people get pissed off. They're like, it's Crowley. I'm like, oh, are you saying that it might annoy him if I said Crowley? Because I would never, exactly. <laughs> you know, Jesse, I would never want to ever, ever call him something he didn't like i wouldn't want to offend the great beast <laughs> and you got to remember that history is always written by the winners right and no. crowley was one of the loudest people at that time you know i mean who else declares themselves as the beast right well his mom declared him as the beast that was not his mom not him it was more abuse than spiritual attainment but he did declare himself the you know the obsessimus he embraced it, right? He embraced the idea of it because he knew it was controversial. Let's be honest. I mean, well, I think also he actually let me let me be pro Crowley for a second. I think when he also came to understand that we all have the beast within us, and if you think you don't have the beast within you, oh baby, you got a ways to go. It's interesting from a Freemason point of view because, for example, oh do tell when. When you when you get your first degree, which you did, you were given a lecture, which you probably don't remember, at the very end of your initiation. And in I was it, too busy staring daggers at the at the British flag under a Bible. And that's typical, right? In ritual work, like well, they knew I was Irish, and and I they they could have directed me to an Irish craft lodge. They could have. Yeah, but they didn't because they were so desperate for young blood. But I mean, in the first degree, when you're, when you're done with your degree, you get a lecture from a, a fellow brother Mason, and he basically says that, you know, basically you have a new light. You have a new purpose. You have a new meaning in life. And it's to take your will and to do with it what you wish to best benefit mankind and society. And when being a Mason, the minute I first read the, you know, uh, the book of the law, 
I realized that this gentleman has had taken the first degree charge and basically said it's will alone. He took the first building block and kind of ran with it. Well, I think he did that with the Golden Dawn too, especially given the fact that Crowley never legitimately was initiated into 5-6 or the Second Order at all, right? He didn't actually, like, you can see even in his astral workings envision the voice and his ether work that he wasn't actually familiar with the most preliminary of inner order teachings in the Golden Dawn. I mean, those teachings are now in the outer order, things like pathworking and stuff. But back then, they were only second order teachings and Crowley did not know them. He did not learn them. He never well, he didn't learn anything. He never got the flying rules. And he couldn't I have mean, been initiated into five six when he visited Mathers in Paris because there was just Moina and Mathers there and you can't initiate an adept without three adepts. That is a fucking yeah, that's fundamental a good point. That's, that's a, a good fun point. no one ever talks about that. Why the fuck does no one ever talk about that? Well that's the funniest part is that he apparently got all thirty second 32 degrees from Mathers by himself. Yeah. And any Mason that has seen the degrees that go up to 32nd degree, there is no way possible that you could do it without 20 actors. It just sounds like when you meet a little kid, you know, like a five-year-old, he's like, yeah, and I've got this, and I got this thing, and then I did this, and I can fly. That's actually a good point, because I think that that... Crowley obviously had something the Mathers wanted. Why else would you initiate someone 32 degrees in masonry and push them through the Golden Dawn like he did? Well, well Mathers Unless, didn't push, only in, allegedly initiated him into 5 equals 6 into adepthood while he was in Paris. I mean, before that, Crowley was in, in England and he couldn't pass his philosophers exams. He couldn't even get into Portal. Correct. So why would this gentleman... But did Mathers initiate him through all 32nd degrees of masonry? Yeah. Or, no, yeah. But, but Mathers never said that. Crowley said that. Just like Mathers never said he initiated Crowley into 5-6. But we know that Mathers and Crowley were very close. We right? don't know that. I don't think we know that at all. Crowley showed up in France after he got refused admission to the Second Order, ratted on a bunch of people in England to Mathers. Mathers had also been cut off from fun, from financially by, by Annie Horniman. And so Mathers was like, yes, let's consolidate power. I've had these people, I've expelled Horniman. I've had these adepts sign a document of fealty. And uh, they're not obeying, so go go take control. But also, we they, they, they weren't in communication with each other. It was very hard to communicate from Paris to England back then. Right. And like yeah. it's displayed as this huge schism where like the Stel you know, out of which well, was the, born well, the Stella Matutina and Alpha Omega and that Yates was with sympathetic to Horniman and was on the side of Florence Farr and they formed the Stella Matutina. But the, here's the thing. Yates wasn't actually anti-Mathers. And so the schism wasn't really as distinct, I think, as people remember it or like to think it was because Yates was here's the thing that the Celtic mystery showed me. And this is I got to hit this this point home again, bro, because Yates kept working with Mathers and Moyna in person in France and via letters after the schism. It, it was like the schism never happened. They kept working together on the Celtic mysteries, irregardless of all that shit with Crowley and the whole split. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. Like, I think people don't take... I just want people to fucking be aware of that. That that says a lot about how how acrimonious things actually were. Because you're a musician. You know about acrimony. 
But I mean, like, who who backed Crowley? Who who was the person that I, let him into the order? I think. Well, well, that well, that was. Uh, I can't. The guy who admitted him, who connected him to the order was different than. Yeah, but well, his main mentor was was Alan Bennett, right? But the guy who uh, introduced him to it, I forget his name. But yeah. I mean, and they were, they, Crowley was just so young. He was early 20s. He was a upstart. And he went through the grade material quickly because back then they were just knowledge lectures. You didn't even learn, didn't even learn the, the basic ritual work until the second order back then. You just had to be studious. Yeah. Oh, it was just memorizing a bunch of shit. You could absolutely do it one month at a time. Even when I went through the Golden Dawn, I did Neophyte in one month. But then I had to wait for the next Zelator initiation, so it took like actually quite a while. But I went, I tested out after a month and a bit because there was a Christmas break there. I was initiated in November. But then I did every other grade every three months because every three we do the initiations in the sign. So it's if it's if you know the sun's in Pisces, we do a practicus. When the sun moves into Aries, we do a philosophus and so on and so forth. Right. So you sometimes have to wait a while, but three months. Three month, you know, one month neophyte, three months zealotor, three months theoricus, then three months practicus. I actually did five months in practicus because I felt I needed more time. But then both me and Martin, um, it was the end of summer, and there shouldn't have been a practicus, a philosophus initiation until Sagittarius. But it was September, and we had del- skipped over going into philosophus after three months, which I think is a good thing. You should spend five months in practicus. Fuck. You should spend a year in every single grade, in my opinion, now, 25 years later. That's what I think. Um, Agreed. You know, fucking take take your time. Oh, my God. Don't rush it, man. Don't rush it. It's You only get to do it once, really. And so we, we they did a special philosophist initiation for me and Martin the night before the equinox in September because they did want more honored members. And to become an honored philosopher was necessary in order to hold the position of Hyrus, and they needed a new new Hyruses in the temple in the, for the initiations, so uh, so they 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 sort of skipped. They they did a special ceremony just for us, which was which was cool. That was cool. Very cool. And then you know, then uh, seven months mandatory in philosophers, and I had to do a year and a half in portal. It's nine months mandatory, which Crowley talks about. Crowley talked about the mandatory seven months for he was delayed he said he was ready to pass through the grade right away but they had a requirement of that you had to wait so long and i was just reading i have this first edition copy of the confessions of crowley here that i picked up during the uh the kincaid fire when i was stranded in santa rosa i found a copy first edition for 25 bucks and they gave it to me for 18 as a as a as a evacuation discount (laughs) and i was like holy shit i also got a uh uh volume one of uh, the autobiography of the guy I was talking about, Mircha Eliada, the historian of religion, and it's signed by him. Oh, my God. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Everyone should read Mircha Eliada, or Mircea, as many academics call him, Mircea Eliada, but his name is Mircha Eliada. Anyway, anywho, um, in the Confessions of Aleister Crowley, he he laments that he was delayed going through philosophists seven months or even maybe it was four months i can't remember right now um and he said you know it's silly that they are making me wait when i've already mastered the intellectual knowledge it's like dude it's not intellectual bro where like do you have you like 
alchemy, man, like spiritual transformation. Like sometimes I feel like they really didn't talk about the main stuff at all back then. You ever feel that way? Well, it was still being built, right? I mean, it was. That's probably they were still figuring let's it out. Be, let's be real about it. There really wasn't any degrees past seven four, right? I mean, it was literally seven. once you got connection with your HGA, you were supposed to go from there, right? Oh no, it's not that there wasn't any degrees past seven four, man, dude. There wasn't. Well, a there seven, were. There was Sam and Zam and all that, but I mean, it was still being figured out. There wasn't a seven four back then, dude. That's what I mean. They were still figuring it out. There was only five six. The tradition that's what I mean. on yeah. ended at five six. That's why it was so funny that people claimed a pessimist, right? Like Crowley, right? Like, well, that like was they didn't even have degrees for that. That was Crowley, and because he did all those aether works in the in the desert and stuff. But uh, yeah, no, the the grade structure was was five equals six, and it wasn't till like. You know, Yates and and them in the Stella Matutina, Yates helped develop the six five and the seven four, or uh, the people. You know, I I think the details are fuzzy. Uh, Nick Farrell and all of those guys, I I bow to their superior knowledge on these things, obviously. Um, but well, they get fuzzy because after Falcon died, he was left up to his wife. And apparently, then people started taking advantage of it and working through grades without doing the work. Um, Falcon was very particular about people finishing the work that they needed to do, where his wife was a little more political, so to speak. Uh, that's yeah. See, people get like that. Like, and I saw that even in my days. Like, you know, grades sometimes people being elevated into uh, the second order just because they were willing to give so much of their time and money to the powers that be. Sure, that's always been the situation right i mean he in some ways you can consider it part of the sort of necessary ethos that surrounds things like military promotions right but that's what makes our work so hard right because it's all it's all internal so you have to have a mentor that knows where you're at in order to know whether you've actually passed the threshold of that grade right it's important i mean the only reason i was elevated to chief adept for canada which is crazy i was 20 22 was because the guy above me quit to get married you know and they're like you're the man i'm like what like yep you're on the throne of the imperator now and we're gonna make you the subpremonstrator for the entire international order and we want you to rewrite the entire grade material that's what i was told at 22 yeah, and that's how it works in masonry. It does. I'm sure it does. And that's because it's a military. Like, that's how it works in the military, man. Your captain's killed in action. You're the captain. And you keep that title well, even once the war is over. Well, let's let's be honest. I mean, like, in, in the early Masonic structures and Golden Dawn structures, there were so many candidates that they were willing to become officers and willing to pursue the work. Whereas nowadays, there's so little folks that are willing to do the work that it's hard to find premonstrators and kuruxes and all of the officers you need to actually do a ritual. That's the thing Frater Yeshu was telling me in 2017. He was telling me, because he was dealing with a schism in his order due to the North Vancouver temple being run by daniel my old best friend who like stole all of the tahuti stuff in my library and most of my my family's livelihood you know and they were dealing with this huge schism and i was like 
well, why did you put up with any of this shit in the first place? And he said, well, because here's the thing, brother. Most people these days, they want to worship demons. They want to summon, do grimoire work. They're doing shots on the altar and just focusing on sex magic. And Yeshi, Yeshi knows what he's talking about because he comes from actually not just being a, a top dog mason like yourself in Victoria, B.C., but he also comes from the OTO world. He was big in the OTO and then quit the OTO to start his own GD group. And he did what Chick did. He just started making tools and sending pictures of them to Chick the same way Chick did to Regardi. Gotcha. Yeah. And so he he really was saying to me, because uh, I had been out of the loop in the since 2004. And so in 2017, he was saying, look, brother, most people aren't into the GD anymore. Most people don't even understand the kind of magical curriculum in college that it is as this really unsurpassed system of training in hermetic high magic. And they're looking just to do fun gray or black spells and, and get all kinky with it or whatever. And uh, he said there's just the Golden Dawn temples that are around. They've got five, maybe six members, sometimes just two or three and then there's some larger groups, and then there's the the international groups that have their small groups, but it's not that big. And that was a shock to me because Temple Tehuti had over a hundred full time functioning members. We were booked twenty four seven in both temples in the three thousand square foot space we had, and it was crazy busy. It was nonstop. It was the Golden Dawn International was definitely the largest Golden Dawn order that's ever existed. Because, you know, we did astral initiations and we did correspondence students and then just give them the physical initiations once a year when they came to the international events. And that allowed it to grow and spread in a very, really beautiful way because fraternity is a huge part of it, not to be underestimated. You want fraternity in, in education, especially when you're not a religiously centered order like Thelema has the advantage of being. Right? Like, GD people are not in the same religion. That's a fact. Yeah, that's true. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish, Episcopalian, or... But we are, though. We're all focusing on the one, right? We're focusing on, yeah, a spiritual ideal, not a religious, moralistic institution. We're breaking it apart. I think that's what that's what the term Freemason means, right? they're free from any religious doctrine oh, because you know the truth right? that's interesting and you know the master mason who who really got me into to be initiated he always said to me he always said to me his name is steve McVitie, and he owned a, a a little butcher shop called celtic treasure chest in uh, the richest of rich areas in vancouver and he said to me always he said here's the thing it's all about the symbolism and here's the the facts about the symbolism I don't get to tell you what the symbols mean to you, and you don't get to tell me what the symbols mean to me. That's it. That's, That's a it. That is the powerful core of Freemasonry, isn't it? This de this deconstruction of archetypes and allowing them to sort of freely play in a, within our own psycho-spiritual being. Yeah, I, I don't think that Freemasons really touch on archetypes. If In fact, yeah. if there's any one archetype, it's probably Saturn. I regretted that word as soon as I used it. I, I, want, I should use a much looser word. Not no, no, no. They, but, they, they, but probably, they probably should use archetypes. They just don't realize it. I think archetypes has too much baggage. It, it's, it's so Jungian. 
it's it's too much for most masons that came out of the war right yeah, there the idea because it, it appeals to the idea of a of a platonic metaphysics of presence the idea that there is one universal cup behind all cups that that everything all the details participate in an infinite whole and that really you know has was disproven by aristotle yeah i mean the lodge room is a room of archetypes and so let's be honest whether you're the uh the Kuraks, you know, bringing a candidate up to the, or you're the senior deacon of a Masonic lodge or Anubis in the, the Book of the Dead. All of the officers, all of the positions, all have specific functions. Um, maybe lost to today's Masons, but they're there. I mean, it's, we create a Shekinah off of the east of the altar. We create a Kabbalist uh, world or tree from the middle of the altar in a 3D sense. But wow. most Masons don't understand that, right? I mean, I don't expect them to, but those in the GD know that. I mean, that's why we, we put a candidate under... Uh, for example, um, Fred R.C., when you had your first degree initiation, you were brought through a door. Mm-hmm. You were asked why the hell you were there, mm-hmm. and you were brought to a spot to invoke God, mm-hmm. the highest of holy holies, right? Then you were taken around a room, right? And you were taken to different stations, and you were told to do different things. This is all based out of the Book of the Dead. I mean, this is this all comes back to that initiation of the underworld. It's yeah. all there. Once you read like uh, yes, M.W. Blackens or you read any of those old uh, reconstructions of the Book of the Dead, you can see that all of our initiations come from it. Did you it's know all that, right there. Did you know that that's how we figured out that the cipher manuscripts of the Golden Dawn couldn't have been older than the 1800s? Exactly. Because in them they contained a reference to the Egyptian Book of the Dead which had only just been translated in the 19th century. And, and which really means the Book of the Day, right? It doesn't mean the Book the of the The Book of the Coming Forth by Day, the Pert Emperor. There you go. The Pert Emperor. And it's the journey of Ani, the candidate, as he goes through the pathway of the soul. You know what's cool about the, the name Ani as the candidate? Because, mm-hmm. you know, going back to the birth of Israel out of Egypt, I mean, the first reference we have in in uh, archaeology to Israel is in an Egyptian stele that talks about this battle and there was and it says oh and there was also the tribes of Israel there right so here's how freaking Egyptian Judaism is the name of the candidate is Ani and do you know what Ani means in Hebrew I don't Uh, it means I I so if I wanted to say to you I'm not an American in Hebrew, Ani. I would say Ani Lo Amerikai. I am not, I not American. Ani Lo Amerikai. Now, if I was to say that in Aramaic, I'd say Anach Lach Amerikai. Interesting. Well, it begs two questions, right? Are we, are we preparing ourselves for what could happen after we die? Or are we preparing ourselves to open up day or dawn? And I think the latter plays towards golden dawn. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that. Um, I know I got all philological on you, but uh, 
the the thing that does fascinate me most is the symbolic, spiritual, alchemical significance to all of this. Well, here here's a good uh, segue to that. For example, after you took your obligation and you went around the lodge and you did uh, you proved yourself in some sort of a way, you went to the altar and you took an obligation, right? So when you took that obligation, when you were hoodwinked, there was a clank above your head. You probably don't remember it, but there was a clank above your head. The clank above your head was the senior deacon's sun rod with the junior deacon's moon rod. Can somebody say alchemical wedding? <laughs> alchemical wedding. That's what that is. You are actually put under a sun in a moon, in a triangle, and took your obligation underneath it. It's something that you didn't see when you took your obligation, but it was there. So there's a chemical wedding happening between severity and mercy um, with the candidate to try to balance them, to try to truly create the first stage of theurgy. Yeah. I mean, and that is... It's, it was crazy to notice how similar those things were to the zero zero neophyte initiation, the GD. Oh, they're just borrowed, right? Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the difference in feeling was like having done the GD stuff. It was like doing the, the Masonic initiation felt like a placebo. It was like, well, okay, it's there. I took so, the pill, so, but I don't feel like I'm rolling. Okay, so here's the thing. It's, that's because you were a first degree candidate. When you I'm get to sure. the third, when you get to the third degree, uh, you, st- you start to uncover a story, which is very similar to Osiris and Isis. And how important do you think is the process in between those degrees of the memorization required of the initiate? The memorization requirements are hopefully to take the verbiage given to you. And to remember what you went through. So you got to remember that we're creating officers out of candidates. Well, I, I mean, not in GD, but in Masonry, you have to memorize the entire ritual. Well, you, you have to in the GD as well when you're an officer. Exactly. But but you have God to help you if you're doing initiations with scripts in your hands, motherfuckers. But you have to do it as a candidate. You have to know what happened to you, even though you right. were hoodwinked. Yeah. So we don't um, require I that of GD the candidates. Does that as well. I mean, that really is the closest thing in masonry to practical magic. It's memorization of what you went through. Well, it's the the fact that how much can you cram into your brain, and how much will you learn based on what you crammed in your brain. We These call things it, are. We're not just cramming our brain with words. We're we're, we're cramming our brains with lessons. Yeah, and memorization is hard. It's a trial. It's a challenge. But most time, people can do much more than they think, right? Uh, oh, way more. Think they dude, can. dude, when uh, some there was time when you're a higher fan in the Golden Dawn, there's times when it's like, okay, we got to do a Theoricus initiation this month. We uh, and because of these other events and because of someone being uh, out of town, we're only going to have two rehearsals. Which basically means that on the day of the initiation, you as hierophant, you're in your room from eight a.m. till six p.m. memorizing pages and pages of full speeches and you have to memorize them in a day and that's a good point because the initiation is a theater right it's a psychodrama it's a psychodrama into the soul yeah 
and good uh, officers that actually practice this, which aren't everybody. Look, everybody that goes into a into a uh, golden dawn or any kind of initiation doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily an officer. You know, they they may not be officer material. And that's fine. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, no, for sure. I mean, it's we need a, it's a, we need artists. Honor. We need, yeah, we need artists, and that's another thing that separates Golden Dawn and Rosicrucianism to Masonry is it involves women, and when you involve women, you add a layer of creativity that was not there. Oh yeah, I couldn't imagine being in an order just full of men. I mean, my after I did the Masonry degree, my mom and sister actually forever following in my footsteps to my <laughs> joy, greatest joy and greatest chagrin. Um, join the Silver Star. <laughs> um, you know, that's what it's called, right? Hello? Yeah, totally. What's the what's the women's mason group called? Silver Star? Um, Eastern Star. Eastern Star. <laughs> Not Silver Star. Eastern Star. And they were so upset. They were like, all they do is these. we sit around with these old women and they talk about knitting and baking goods for the men. And they were very disappointed, and I was sad actually because I was hoping that they would find a nice community there. But they said, they said it felt like just taking a, a time travel back to, uh, you know, before women's rights. I know that can sound really critical. I don't mean it to be. It's I'm just relating their experience. No, no. I think I think that, I think that what happened was is that you had. I mean, you got, it's a different day and age, right? Back then, women worked around the house, men you know, worked. Um, and so, so it was a different time. I think that that Eastern Star was a way for women to kind of get a feel to what masonry was and or to collaborate with their partners, so to speak. Yeah, well, that's cool. It's like, we can't have you away from the women, your wives drinking all night after these ceremonies, so let's have them do some baking for us and be tertiary. Well, and as, you know, women's rights and things, let's, let's be honest, there's a history behind it, right? I mean, once women became able to vote, there became a longing to involve them in more activities. Yeah. I think that's where Eastern Star kind of, you know, created its, yeah. Yeah. its foyer. Yeah. Anyway, but with magic, man, with ritual magic, I mean, especially when you consider the whole, you know, the sex magic element of it all, which of course is not in the Golden Dawn at all but is in the second order a little bit and is all over OTO and AA. That's all, that's all what? Pashel Beverly? Isn't that Pashel Beverly? Yeah, I know about her. Well, a bunch of people were into this no, stuff. No, him. It's, it's in a... I mean, yeah. uh, there was a huge sex no, magic connection. he was a connection. OTO guy. There was, you, you know about the huge sex magic connection between, like, Mathers, who was anti-sex magic, um, probably because he was a gay guy married to a lesbian beard that's my humble theory yeah let the message boards go wild um he was writing these letters to robert louis stevenson and where have you heard of robert louis stevenson yeah no he he grabbed a lot of his thoughts from pashel beverly i'm 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 mentioning him because there's streets in santa rosa named after him and you're from there Yeah, no, right, so true. Mathers was writing. It was Mathers and someone else who were writing letters. I believe someone told me 
to this you know famous author and mystic here in this Sonoma area who were really into creating sex magic work with their followers in Sonoma County. So um, what what you're alluding to is Steiner's movement. Uh, Steiner actually planned to create a utopian society here in Santa Rosa. Um, he marked it with a building called the Round Barn, which was actually burned down two years ago in the fires. Whoa. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. I missed that. Dude, we have to go on a little uh, sightseeing expedition. Definitely. Uh, the Round Barn's a very famous building because it was one of the first viticulturist uh, buildings for creating wine in Sonoma County. Um, the building was actually constructed by a samurai with the last name Nagasaki, I believe. And he was a student of Steiner. Wow. So Steiner had roots all the way into Sonoma County. Wow, I never would have guessed that, man. And I'm a Waldorfian. This is not the perfect place, right? Um, And Steiner had roots all the way out here. In fact, Waldorf schooling is huge here. Well, I noticed the schools, man. Like I was plant. Like I had, I had, I've had a few options to uh, take jobs there. Um, Unfortunately, and you were schooled Waldorf, right? Correct. K through thirteen. Yeah. So you know. Oh, do I ever, man. Hey, dude, I was in the same class as an Indian prince who's now a politician in India and Gibran Chong, Tommy Chong's son. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, my, my uh, yeah, partner... They did, not, they did not condemn weed for the four years that Tommy Chong's son was in school. Because could you imagine being a teacher at a PTA with, for a class of 12 students with Tommy Chong in the front row and try and condemn weed? That's so funny. No, yeah, yeah. The year after Gibran graduated, um, two students lost their honors for smoking weed under the steps because, no, that, you know, that's... Tommy Chong's son's gone. Dude, this shit is not okay anymore. I mean, this was 99. No, like, for example, my, my lady used to teach at uh, Waldorf School. Really? So, um, Your wife? Yeah. So she basically would tell me about how when things are missing, the gnomes count to it. Oh, yeah, they taught us that all the time. It's always about right. the gnomes. But, like, even the teachers don't even realize the esoteric lineage of what they're carrying on, right? They have no idea. Oh, well, they either don't know or they do know so well that they don't demonstrate it. They teach by example. Because that's the thing people don't know. That's the dirty little secret of Walder schools. They are Rosicrucian occult organizations that are so Rosicrucian, they're not Rosicrucian. And they teach Steiner's practices and and pedagogy through example only. But you could go through without knowing. Of course. You could be a a child development major and learn the whole child and the whole unflowering of the child, right? Yeah. And have no idea that you're furthering a Rosicrucian philosophy. Yeah, and the entire curriculum, the reason we don't learn to read till we're 9 or 10 years old is because Steiner perceived or believed that the emotional aura hadn't finished fully developing and that if you force studies that develop the mental aura before the emotional aura fully develops, then you you damage the development of the emotional aura or the Gefühlenseele of Deutsch. So that's crazy, right? Like that's a spiritual philosophy that directly impacts how and when they teach a kid to read. Yeah, definitely. Now, and the, the proof's in the pudding, as it turns out, uh, because our students 
by grade eight, as time goes on, read higher level at a higher level than the average public school student who's forced to read in grade one. Yeah, totally. I agree. But they also deny, like Daniel, my best friend, who then caused that schism in Yeshi's order, he was denied entrance in grade one to the Walder School because you draw a picture of a person and a tree, a sun, and a house, and his people were all flying off the ground, not not drawn on the ground. So they decided that he was not fully incarnated enough and would be better off in a public school. Interesting. Which is very interesting given his family, his dad is the head of the communications department at Simon Fraser University and a world-renowned scholar in, in, in the childhood development regarding video games and, and TV. And uh, he could have paid the $750 a month fee to have his son in school. The school still said no and in favor of perhaps a student that might have had to be on support and only pay 175 a month. So they, wow. would, they would stand by their principles and for the good of what they believed was the good of the child, even against their own financial interests. And Walder schools struggle, man. When I, when the teacher's salary when I started in 1985 was at 38000 a year. When I graduated, their salaries were at 36000 a year. Wow. So like from 85 to 99 their salaries dropped by $2,000 a year. And if you're making money in the 30s, you're fucking fucked. You know, most of them had to have second jobs or, uh, you know, fortunately, some of them, a lot of them were highly educated academics who also were, you know, made money from their publishings or voiceover work because a lot of them speak German and stuff. Gotcha. Anyway. But yeah, no, Walder School is a Rosicrucian school. It's and Steiner believed that it wouldn't reach its full maturity until the students started becoming teachers, which is one of the reasons I was often I often took jobs as Walder School teachers, especially in German language. But I never actually showed up to do the jobs. <laughs> I was on my way to the Walder School in Scarif in our, in Western Ireland, and I swung by this island and ended up joining a band. <laughs> That was the first time I, I joined a band. And I was just like, yeah, I could I could make 17 euros an hour teaching German in the countryside, or I could uh, play music six hours a day in the garden of, of Chirnanog, uh, playing Irish bagpipes and singing in Gaelic and make $50 an hour. <laughs> yeah, right? Hard decisions. <laughs> what are you going to do, man? Like... I'm sorry, $17 an hour to teach German to some ungrateful fucking Irish kids versus singing Gaelic songs and playing bagpipes for 50 an hour. What are you going to do, especially at 25, 26 years old? Yeah, totally. But I would love to teach Waldorf one day when money is no longer an issue because, God, I don't know how the hell you could raise a family on 36000 a year. Especially in Canada where they take away half that money. Or sorry, sorry, sorry. I don't mean take away. I mean um, fund Medicare for all. Yeah, totally. I know. I'm getting a little political. That's probably a, t- a sign that we should uh, we should uh, you know to tell us die. <laughs> no, it's been a, it's been a pleasure talking to you for the last three hours. Yeah, we've done three hours, and I know I, I was actually because this is my I got locked out of my old podcast. Um, and this is my revamped new one with some of the old content, but some of it I couldn't rescue. And so I really wanted the first interview chit chat on this to actually, you know, 
achieve a certain bar and i think three hours and eight minutes going on is a is a is a good bar to set i have another interview actually in 30 minutes with someone with another golden dawn person in america so i've been going solid since 6 a.m and uh let me just say uh if the uh that's because uh i take my vows seriously and uh i i will forever strive to be more than human no i appreciate your persistence uh fred Ursi. it's been a pleasure talking with you and i'd be more than happy to participate in any future uh podcast you got would you like to wrap up by just telling the world a little bit about your uh, band, your music, and where they can find you and, and you know, sort of uh, pretend you're at the end of Hot Wings here and, and you're doing some shameless self-promotion. You're a musician. You promote music gig bags and all these strings and chords. By the way, I could really use a gig bag. <clears throat> so uh, why don't you just uh, tell people what the name of your bands are, where they can find your music, what instruments you play, what the best song is they can download right now on Spotify or iTunes. Just go for it. I appreciate it, Trader. Um, you know, I do music production of all genres. Uh, most recently, probably my baby project is a band called Trial by Combat. We're a uh, death metal, kind of melodic death metal kind of band. Uh, we're super extreme, but very musical. Uh, that particular album called Consumed by the Darkness was actually set to be launched in May, but due to the whole uh, coronavirus situation, we're looking at probably putting this back out around uh, June or July. Um, got a lot of uh, music publicists behind it. We created a new music video uh, under a song called Extinguination Excite. Can people Super see that somewhere? Yeah, you can check that out on YouTube. And what's it called again? Exsanguination Excite. Exsanguination. Exsanguination. That's my uh, lead singer getting all uh, technical with ways to die. Oh, sounds like <laughs> a prima donna to me. Yeah, it could be a little bit. But, you know, we're extreme. Uh, we're one of the most extreme Bay Area bands. We opened up for Soulfly, all the big names in the area. And we're, we're typically called in for tour support. Uh, what what are the big names? I'm I'm personally curious. Yeah, no. Last month, or sorry, three months ago, we played with Tyr, T Y R, which is a really yeah. big Norse kind of uh, pagan metal band. We opened up for Soulfly, which is a really big band as well from South America. Oh, I think uh, everyone we, knows who Soulfly are. So you know, we tend to back up anybody locally here who does any big shows. Um, it's not our, you know, it's, it's not my money maker, but it's my passion and it's been fun. And it's really funny to be an esoteric student and work in the black metal community because <laughs> the occult symbolism is everywhere, but very few people actually practice or do anything it's not, it's beyond wearing rocked. the pentagram. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what are the best platforms for people to support you on? The best place to check us out right now is probably YouTube. Uh, we got that newest music video out. It was done by a leading producer in the Bay Area named Mike Sloat, who's done uh, Testament videos, um, some of the best out there. So the production's top notch. We had a lot of fun filming it. Uh, it's based on kind of a Dexter-esque murder scene. Um, 
you know, perfect for all them cats that are into extreme music. I love it. I love it. All right. Well, Fratter, it's been very good talking with you, and I really hope I can see your beautiful face again soon. Jesus, this has been a, it's an ongoing nightmare. I love that you said last month and then you changed it to three months. That's so emblematic of where we're all at, right? It's such a blur, man. Like, what day is it, right? What oh, time is it? I messaged one of my upcoming podcast guests, Sabrina the Witch, and out of Toronto, and I messaged her on Tuesday. I'm like, so our interview's tomorrow, right? And she's like, it's our interview's Friday. I was like, isn't it Thursday? And she's like, it's no. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, it's not, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. Here's what I'm going to say. Cobbs unpacks, conks unpacks, light and extension, brother. I love you. Light and extension, brother. LVX, brother. We're going to, we're going to see each other soon. Come hell or high water. Yep. Soon enough, brother. All right. Peace profound. All right, be well. Peace for fun. Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk and as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.